This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high position, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 45. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, um, we're recording this on a day of reckoning. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. And (laughs) as as of 6 o'clock Eastern time, no special operators have repelled, uh, have fast rope descended from Navy choppers in the middle of uh, Joe Biden's inaugural speech and arrested him. Um, yeah. for being an agent of the CCP. Uh, so I guess the globalists have won. And uh, Yeah, this is unfortunately a normal podcast and not an emergency broadcast on all channels worldwide, uh, interrupting everyone's phone calls and uh, yeah. <laughs> YouTube or whatever to broadcast an address from Trump uh, declaring yeah. that the cabal has been defeated uh, at the 11th hour. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really, really, uh, it's a shame, yeah. but you know, this is, uh, this is episode 45 and yeah, you know, I mm-hmm. guess as it, we it's say goodbye kinda... to, you know, 45, you know, uh, I he who shall name. not be named. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, uh, TR asterisk, uh, MP, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's gone. Um, the orange but- menace, the mango Mussolini, himself, <laughs> the, ta- the tangerine terror, uh, the high C yeah. Hitler, uh, no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I just yeah, gotta get wow. those out. Uh, you know what? I just out. realized that we actually do kind of have like, you know, a whole st- like repertoire of like a bungler type names for Trump, you know, like the same way there is like, Oh, bungler. Oh, yeah. Oh, Muslim, you know, like, Oh, yeah. Oh, oh traitor. Oh, traitor. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, They're dumbass. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, butt munch. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we did, we did get uh, some good ones out of it. Um, but I mean, I yeah. guess it's, it's somewhat apropos cause like today we're, we're going to dive, uh, we're going to pick up on our Contra series, but, uh, like all of the, pretty much all the other, you know, installments in the Contra series, this, uh, this, this centers heavily around presidential, uh, 
executive power and things that were mm-hmm. done in the White House, in the room where it happened. Um, yes. Yes. And, I heard you know, that several uh, Hamilton references were worked into the inaugural poem uh, today, just, you know, to reset the tone for the country. You know, we're back on, we're back on track, you know. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. We're building yeah. back better. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. And we made it, you know, we, I guess we're, we're going to make it out of our dark winter, uh, unlike uh, another superpower nation that did not make it out of its dark winter, uh, which is the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And the, uh, basically the main topic of the book that we're going to be uh, doing a, like a deep analysis of today, which uh, we've mentioned before in a bunch of different episodes. It's like an interesting window into the Reagan Bush uh, milieu of the 1980s and the final years of the Soviet Union, and that is uh, Peter Schweizer's Victory, which I think came out in 1994. And uh, we've talked about Schweizer before a little bit. He is the, and I do, I don't think this is a coincidence. Uh, he is the William J. Casey Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. <laughs> pretty cool uh, yeah and yeah, uh and i think title. he he may i think he he kind of probably made his bones uh probably <clears throat> this book that he wrote in 1994 probably went a long way towards uh him getting that vaunted title because the main protagonist of it really is william j casey uh yeah, ronald reagan's cia is. director yeah there's no one who uh, has done more to hold that chair than Peter Schweizer uh, in this book. Uh, mm-hmm. It really is mm-hmm. all about, yeah, the main character is definitely Bill Casey. Um, yeah, sure. yeah. And, you know, even uh, though this this book is, like, relatively obscure, we'll get into, like, it's popped up again in, in a few ways. Um, it's like, uh, it's almost like Christopher Lash for MAGA people, <laughs> you know, like a little yeah. bit. It's like, whoa, yeah. like this, this guy wrote this back in like the early 90s. But like, you know, it, uh, it explains like certain people in the Trump administration found this book and wanted to apply the sort of uh, the lessons and the strategies and tactics that are described therein uh, towards its policy towards Iran um, over the last couple of years. Uh, but basically, like mo- most people are probably more aware Peter Schweizer from he's a pretty regular face on Fox News and he goes on Tucker Carlson all the time and uh he made a little bit of a splash I think back in 2016 with his book Clinton Cash which you know uh exposed all the shady financial dealings of the Clintons and uh he's written a few kind of like expose like kind of muckraking books in uh, more recent years usually focused on the uh, the demon rats and the Clintons and people of that nature. And so this book kind of like it went out of print and, you know, he doesn't really talk about it much anymore. And it kind of just uh, kind of like faded away uh, from, you know, the historical conversation. But I think it's interesting. I stumbled on this book like years ago when I think I first read about like uh, Project Hammer in the sort of 9-11 conspiracy world. Um, and you know, which was supposedly a secret, uh, like financial kind of sabotage, uh, operation that was masterminded by mainly by president George HW Bush and 
some other people like Alan Greenspan in the very late 80s, early 90s to like bankrupt the Soviet treasury and like bring down the entire Soviet bloc and like bust out their economy, you know, like the Mm -hmm. mobsters that they are. And I think when I was like searching for Project Hammer, somehow in the search, this book popped up. And it was kind of a close, and you know, if you look at the cover of it, it sounds uh, tantalizingly relevant. It says, uh, the Reagan administration's secret strategy that hastened the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so I got, oh, interesting, you know? I like that Hasten is doing a lot of work there, uh, Uh you might say. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, but that, it's interesting because I actually, like, it's weird to kind of know, like, or could kind of think about how the collapse of the Soviet Union is seen differently in different circles. Like, I mm-hmm. think that generally, like, people of, you know, as you mentioned, like, uh, there's there, there was definitely, like, a moment for this book in the, in the Trump administration vis-a-vis Iran. Like, Pompeo, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was big into it and wanted to apply the lessons there to uh, collapsing the Iranian, uh, you know, the, the Islamic Republic. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, like, uh, but it's interesting because, you know, generally in those circles, they kind of would cleave to the idea that, uh, the Soviet Union was destined to collapse, I guess, you know, and that it, it, like, because like the underlying ideology was like a rotten attack on, you know, the values of country or whatever, you know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, but uh yeah this is basically all about how uh it actually was like uh brought about by like a particular uh, series of like geopolitical decisions um Mm -hmm. exactly often uh led by bill casey um yes and uh and pretty much like all kinds of personalities in the reagan cabinet and the national security council and yeah you're right it does uh this this book interests me uh one of the real like the most interesting uh dynamics of it is kind of like navigating that contradiction because peter schweizer of how we look at the soviet union and like why it collapsed because i think uh he he spent some time in the early part of the book kind of breaking down you know really uh taking a stand on the side of it was not inevitably doomed to collapse however he's also writing from a pretty anti-soviet and anti-communist perspective and a very kind of right-wing american perspective so he has to take pot shots at the soviet union along the way and say you know they are uh, they're you know that their economy is not great and that you know there's a lot of uh there's like internal you know dissension that uh has to be kind of managed and there's like there's there's vulnerabilities and choke points but he kind of um he really contrasts himself with a lot of the quotes from like very, very smart people at the time. Uh, He quotes in his, you know, introduction that, um, that, and this is interesting as well from like maybe people who weren't even like left wing, but they were establishment, you know, uh, economists and, you know, political thinkers, academics, things like that. Uh, Like he writes that, uh, that Arthur Schlesinger declared after a 1982 visit to Moscow, quote, I found more goods in the shops, more food in the markets, more cars in the street, more of almost everything except, for some reason, caviar. 
With his literary guns directed at the Reagan administration, he summed up that those in the U.S. who think the Soviet Union is on the verge of economic and social collapse, ready with one small push to go over the brink, are only kidding themselves. Schlesinger compared these Americans with Soviet officials who saw capitalism in its final stages, noting that there were on both sides wishful thinkers who always see other societies as more fragile than they are. Each superpower has economic troubles. Neither is on the ropes. He says noted economist John Kenneth Galbraith made a similar assessment in 84. Quote, the Russian system succeeds because in contrast to the Western industrial economies, it makes full use of its manpower. The Soviet economy has made great national progress in recent years. Distinguished Sovietologist Sewerin Bialer of uh, Columbia University opined in Foreign Affairs in 82, the Soviet Union is not now or will it be during the next decade in the throes of a true systemic crisis, for it boasts some enormous unused reserves of political and social stability that suffice to endure the deepest difficulties. Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson put it even more strongly in his textbook Economics in 81. It is a vulgar mistake to think that most people in Eastern Europe are miserable. And Professor Lester Thoreau at MIT claimed as recently as the late 1980s in his textbook The Economic uh, Problem, can economic command significantly compress and accelerate the growth process? The remarkable performance of the Soviet Union suggests that it can. In 1920, Russia was but a minor figure in the economic councils of the world. Today, in a, today, it is a country whose economic achievements bear comparison with those of the United States. Uh, and Strobe Talbot, who I feel like has gone on InfoWars before, um, in a highly charged uh, article when Time Magazine proclaimed Mikhail Gorbachev man of the decade, declared that the doves in the great debate of the past 40 years were right all along. He claimed that anti-communists like those in the Reagan administration based their views on, quote, a grotesque exaggeration of what the Soviet Union could do. It was believed to be possessed of immense and malignant strength, including the self-confidence, prowess, and resources for the conduct of all-out war. The record, though, indicates that the opposite was largely true. It was the liberal left that consistently overestimated the strength of the Soviet regime. As liberal left economist Robert Heilbrunner admitted in dissent, the farther to the right one looks, the more prescient has been historic foresight. The farther to the left, the less so. You know, that. so that, that lays out right there that um, the sort of like the lamestream uh, experts in the early 1980s we're absolutely not predicting the imminent collapse of the Soviet Union. However, and yeah. I think he, this is from 94, so he doesn't have a lot of time, but I think sitting in 2021, I think we can confidently say that the normative belief amongst so-called experts and historians and whatever nowadays is that the Soviet Union was destined to collapse. And Schweitzer yeah. is pointing out that this this understanding of it is kind of inverted, where it basically the sort of more liberal uh, detente kind of establishment, uh, they thought that the Soviet Union would... It, it sounds like the, the way the real battle lines were drawn was like they didn't believe the Soviet Union could be taught, was too stable to be toppled, and probably largely for that reason believed like one should not try to topple it because yeah. you're going to cause all kinds of problems. And it was Reagan who believed that it was vulnerable to collapse, but it needed a push and we ought to give it that push. And he did mm -hmm. according yeah. to this book. But I think, I think he's not, I think Schweizer does actually a pretty good job of at least, uh, outlining these different initiatives that were secretly, you know, uh, cooked up in the white house with a very small group of like senior level officials and advisors 
and basically uh, were rolled out to increasingly devastating effect throughout the 1980s and then basically kind of laid the groundwork for the final uh, coup de gras uh, during the Bush era in, you know, from 89 to 91. Yeah, right. It's an but yeah, parallel to Iran. I mean, we were talking just before the show. Like I was saying, like uh, you know, I was talking about how everyone always, or you know, uh, maybe less so in in certain quarters. You know, maybe among like academic historians in the same way that Sovietologists didn't think the Soviet Union could ever collapse. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't believe that the Iranian, uh, you know, regime, uh, the mullahs, you know, uh, could collapse. Mm-hmm. Whereas. Uh, but I, I do feel that, you know, even across the political spectrum, really, there's uh, people always saying, like, you know, it's about to collapse, it's about to collapse. But, of course, like, it never uh, does, um, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's kind of, it's almost like a QAnon level of uh, sort of failed prophecy that's always happening. Like, every time there's some kind of protests, like the ones that seem an aeon ago now uh, that we witnessed relatively recently uh, mm-hmm. in, in Iran, Um uh, that, you know, people were saying like, this is it, you know, this is, uh, it's a bit like the mullahs are, it's going to crumble. It's happening. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but you did rightly point out, uh, as I was saying that, that, you know, maybe there is parallel with the Soviet Union there. And if, uh, you know, pressure were applied, uh, in the same way or like as effectively, like maybe, you know, uh, very many countries could be, could be brought down, but, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, of course, these parallels like are imperfect. Uh, I think that there's like ma- obviously many different factors. Uh, you know, well, I, I mean, I think they're they're imperfect because, of course, yeah, the USSR and Iran were in kind of slightly different eras and like they're different countries. But I think the tactics that were employed by the U.S. government in the 1980s yes. against mm-hmm. the Eastern Bloc have basically just continued and expanded and become more sophisticated over the last 30 to 40 years and which isn't to say that they're always 100% successful I think they've had successes and they've had failures Um, but Mm. I think you see that and of course you know this goes all the way back to economic warfare tactics that Bill Casey sort of learned and developed uh, going all the way back to World War II where he was in the OSS and was put in charge of a kind of like economic sabotage uh, operations using agents inside of Germany um, to attack the Nazis. Um, now, of course, he would become a very good friend to uh, ultra right wing uh, anti communist forces uh, after that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he very quickly and enthusiastically turned his attention on destroying communism, uh, which, you know, he kind of pursued. Uh, throughout the rest of his professional life. Um, And I think there's even a connection with him with kind of like, uh, we'll have to do a a whole episode on this book one day, but uh, uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile. That's a book that Dave Emery references a lot. And uh, I've only read through a little bit of it, but I know that uh, Dave Emery is like, you know, cited a lot of passages that talk about how Bill Casey was somebody who was kind of like, he was an international, he was a young, you know, up and coming banker, an OSS guy who was sort of given like stewardship of some of these Nazi uh, money laundering accounts, like, you know, kind of underground Reich, like, uh, uh, I think what uh, maybe that book and Emery always calls like the Borman Capital Flight Network. So, like, all of this wealth that basically was spirited out of the country to 
whether it was to Switzerland or to South America or laundered through the Vatican Bank, like Bill Casey was one of the guys who's kind of like put on that detail right at the end of uh, World War II. So we're talking about a guy who goes back very deep in the game and uh, with the kind of shadow economy world of like Mark Lombardi. And uh, mm-hmm. and he had developed, but he never really got, I think, uh, a chance to be like at the helm like leading this kind of um, economic warfare campaign until he became CIA director in 1981. And then uh, it seems like this was really the centerpiece of like his entire directorship and his vision for uh, re-beefing up the CIA after it had taken some lumps in the 70s uh, and using it proactively to disrupt the Soviet Union's economy their culture, their political movements, et cetera, on like almost every level and wage an entire PSYOP campaign on them from like multiple different angles. Like basically throw everything on the board, like everything we can do to undermine, retard their economic development, like uh, uh, undermine deals that they're doing with European countries, escalate the the covert war in Afghanistan, uh, provide billions of dollars to solidarity underground uh activists um in poland and then later in the czech republic uh you know this book what i love about this book is uh that even though it doesn't have an index uh or it seems like a table yeah, of contents or, or anything like that or, or footnotes yeah not really yeah. footnotes yeah. like or most of the contents, sourcing yeah, no table contents. yeah yeah oh it but does like, have the, end notes it does have end notes yeah sorry okay was, uh, it's so, got sorry, some end notes Wiser. it has end notes <laughs> but you know what, uh, what i what i really view this book this book as as like an oral history from like people that were in the reagan administration and were involved in these secret operations like it it, because most of the stuff is directly from interviews with like john poindexter casper weinberger uh glenn campbell richard allen don regan uh william clark robert mcfarlane richard pipes uh all all these people that had various roles within the reagan administration like the national security council and some of them I think some of those names popped up like in Contra One and like the October Surprise. Uh, that um, wasn't it. I think it might have been uh, Richard Allen who was like, "You guys are just too stupid." Like, oh, like what? Are you from like a PBS network in Boston? Like, what KGB unit is paying you? You know, like that guy who was just like a, a total asshole uh, to Robert Perry and um, right. And so you know, you, you got him in the mix. Uh, and, you know, a, a couple uh, kind of Reagan loyal, like William Clark, his first, uh, Reagan's first national security advisor was like a longtime aide and, and friend uh, to Reagan. So some of these people came from the very like reactionary, like California crowd, like going back to the 60s. Other people were, you know, these like spooky, just sort of uh, military intelligence world uh, kind of hands. And of course, you have, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush kind of putzing around in the margins though he doesn't get i'll say from the outset like george hw bush doesn't pop up so much in this story he pops up less than you might imagine him to and i almost found that a little bit suspicious uh almost like uh not to say that bill casey didn't wasn't like spearheading a lot of these things i mean this book does not really get into like iran contra stuff it mostly covers up to from like 81 to kind of 87 um, around the time that, uh, you know, uh, 
Casey became ill and then, you know, died of a brain tumor before he could testify, etc. Uh, but, but George H.W. Bush is kind of like around, but like it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, it seems like he was kind of read in on a lot of this stuff, but was not like part of the core group as perhaps like you might imagine him being. But I wonder if that's just like Schweizer being kind of smart and like not trying to wrap the bushes too much. Uh, because of course Bush was the president who like succeeded Reagan and then presided over the actual collapse of the you know the 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 communist bloc the the Soviet bloc uh, from eighty nine to ninety one and the book doesn't really get into like well you know if they were doing all this subversion in the eighties what were they doing from 89 to 91 to help, you know, put the final nails in the coffin because they absolutely were doing something. Um, you know, I, I, you know, the idea that George H.W. Bush just kind of sat on his hands and went to a few summits with Gorby and, you know, promised him that NATO wouldn't uh, encroach further east or whatever. And then just the internal contradictions just, you know, did the rest of the work. Uh, I don't buy that at all. But, you know, I think this is a valuable uh, oral history of the guys who are essentially bragging about what they did. That's the other fun thing about this book. The interesting thing about it is that these guys are like boasting that they basically killed the evil empire, the evil communist empire. Like they mm-hmm. did it. And they're like, if only yeah. we couldn't tell you at the time, but let me tell you how we, we totally fucked them over. And they're really like enthusiastic to like take responsibility for it. Um, n- not that they would uh, feel not that it would, they would get in trouble for it or anything today, but maybe just given the way the world has turned out, they would be li- a little bit like less ebullient than they were in 1993, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. You know, so uh, so you get these guys really kind of like telling on themselves in all kinds of interesting ways. And if you're reading this from any more of a uh, kind of a anti-imperialist perspective, they really kind of incriminate themselves in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. just like enthusiastically yeah. bragging. Right. It's very different vibe than like these guys sitting down with like Robert Perry, who they view as, you know, like a fucking hippie, useful idiot, piece of shit liberal who's like trying to get mm-hmm. them. You know, they look at like this young buck, uh, Peter Schweizer, this young nerd um, who the dust jacket says lives in McLean, Virginia. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, uh, he's definitely down mm-hmm. with like the whole CIA crowd. Uh, they're speaking to a very sympathetic audience. And so they really kind of open up. I mean, Bill Casey is not interviewed because he's dead by the time he wrote this book. But a lot of these people kind of fill in anecdotally kind of what was Bill Casey up to and all these other things. And he was up to a lot, mm-hmm. pretty much, right? Yeah. He um, definitely was up to a lot. He's, like, constantly, je- like, you know, jet-setting uh, all around the world, you know. Uh, just, yeah, it's crazy. Like, through his diplomacy, you really get a picture of... He's a good focus because you really get a picture of the global scope of all this intrigue. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and it definitely is, yeah, it's very interesting, uh, to see this kind of, like, uh, you know, alternate, uh, stance than, than what you, uh, often hear about the kind of ideological victory of the, over the, in the Cold War, you know, that it was, like, a fair fight or whatever, whereas this is more bragging about, you know, uh, causing the collapse, uh, mm-hmm. which, yeah, is, uh, unique and, and definitely, uh, interesting, uh, yeah, it yeah. would be, you know, it's more interesting perhaps than, uh, you know, a, a non-sympathetic analysis uh, of how, like, this collapse was caused because it's, like, an inside perspective that, yeah, is really 
I think bragging is an apt description, uh, or <laughs> at least like valorizing what was done and, you know, uh, yeah, applauding. It makes sense that this would be something that would be consulted as like a, a manual by people who are looking to apply the same ideas, uh, to other, other contexts. Um, for sure. You know, and, yeah. And even I think it has a lot of relevance to even like the geopolitical tensions that exist between Russia and the U.S. today. Like in and also like the uh, like China and the the relationship between China and the United States is a really interesting part of this book to me, Uh, especially Mm -hmm. because a lot of it really pivots on or has to do with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of like you know, the Saudis play, like, a huge role in this, and, like, the a, a lot of what motivates them is their concern over the possibility of, like, an Iran-style uprising in Saudi Arabia, um, mm-hmm. and, of course, there's, like, uh, lots of uh, diplomacy going on between the Zia government in Pakistan and, and Bill Casey, um, and, uh, yeah, uh, especially, like, uh, vis-a-vis the whole Chinese situation, where it's really like something that's very interesting that uh, I think we definitely should go into is uh, Mm -hmm. the way that China kind of tried to make strategic concessions to like actually the Uyghur minority in uh, Xinjiang province, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, new territory, uh, you know, to try to sort of play that uh, against Russia. Um, And they were seen as, you know, by Bill Casey and by the United States in general as like a potential ally against the the soviets and uh you know despite mm-hmm. the fact that uh they were communist and uh all of that uh yeah that that know, is they, something that i kind of didn't expect uh, jumping out when i started this book was like the very cozy relationship uh in some respects between like the intelligence apparatuses of china and bill casey yeah they took you know, like, a lot and of like ideas the, from him and it's crazy because they really had like their own sort of like radio free Asia, you know, uh-huh. like, uh, yeah, and like, uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting to see like the kind of uh, same ideas uh, uh, be sort of reversed uh, and instrumentalized like in, in a different direction. You know, they would uh, kind yeah. of, uh, yeah, cause, and they sort of, well, they were, of course. The friction between, like, uh, the CCP and the Uyghurs uh, goes back, like, a long way, but they mm-hmm. kind of strategically, like, modulated their position uh, in that mm-hmm. struggle, like, in order to uh, make uh, Russia seem less appealing and, like, conducted yeah. a massive propaganda campaign, like, partially at the behest of Bill Casey to try to, yeah. you know, uh, manipulate these, uh, like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because it yeah. is like a literal kind of mirror. It's like a, yeah, an inversion of what, uh, China claims is being done to them in Xinjiang nowadays that like Western or, you know, uh, Turkish kind of influences or Saudi influences are trying to stir up the Muslims in that region when, yeah, in the eighties, as you said, they basically were trying to stir up the ethnic uh, Kyrgyz population and like the ethnic um, Muslim groups that were in, yeah, like uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and stuff and trying to stir up shit inside of the Soviet border and doing it kind of like in collaboration with a very right wing U.S. administration. And of course, also providing arms 
uh, to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. That was another thing they were doing. Yes. And mm-hmm. we're even entertaining the idea of like if there could be some kind of like Islamic separatist violence that happened in the border regions yeah. in, in Soviet Central Asia that would, you know, become uh, like attacking that soft underbelly of the USSR. Like they were totally here for it and i mean you just hate to see you hate to see you know two communist superpowers like you know fighting like this like what and like one of them collaborating with like bill case like what the 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 uh sino-soviet split Uh, really you're feeling the fucking reverberations of it all throughout this book and just like how it was like so easy for america to to slip in there and play them against each other it definitely goes to show as well that, like, some of the uh, put-on obliviousness to, like, the concerns about, like, religious freedom that they, uh, you know, show now, like, uh, in the current uh, sort of situation in, in, in Xinjiang, mm-hmm. they, like, you know, it kind of shows how that is uh, a little bit uh, put on, where, like, they definitely knew enough to, like, try to, like, scale it back when it came down to trying to like position themselves as you know more friendly to islam than to than the soviets they were able Mm -hmm. to understand that this is like you know hostile to like people's practice of their religion but like now they're like what are you talking about you know it's just uh yeah well and i i wonder to what extent like their the, the feeling of like the security apparatus in china is like a you know it remembers the, these 1980s eras and like are uh, afraid of this thing being weaponized back towards them the way they once weaponized it uh, to to get at the Soviets like they they inherently see like a I don't know trends of religiosity or whatever is kind of like something that was weaponized by a hostile mm-hmm. actor that's like coming to get yes. them or something like that. Like, like they've already kind of put this into like the box of like a kind of national security paradigm back in the eighties. And so perhaps that, that has seeped into the thinking like even today. Uh, and yeah, there definitely is yeah, like a it, sense of like the, yeah, the instrumentality of it where they uh, definitely saw this as something that could be used as a tool uh, yeah, but I think that that definitely there is like a on on some I'm sure like you know maybe there are some who kind of have forgotten, but I think that there definitely is like a a, a memory uh, that exists, um, which you know I think definitely indicts uh, their policy as well as like serves to ex- explain it in some ways, um, where they yeah uh, it's something that yeah they. It's a case of projection that we often encounter in talking about these geopolitical things where, uh... Yeah, yeah. Electric, 
куда я не хочу. Just to uh, dive a little more um, into China for a moment, I just want to read something from, uh, I guess it's like page 64, about when Bill Casey flew to uh, to have a secret meeting with China. Um, I believe that this would have been, this would have been in uh, either 1981 or 82. He visited President Zia in Pakistan. We'll, we'll get to him uh, shortly. But then went over to China, and uh, Schweizer wrote that the Chinese, with their long common border with the Soviet Union, were tying down almost half a million Soviet troops. By virtue of geography, China was also proving increasingly important as an American intelligence partner. When the Shah fell in 1979, the U.S. lost access to some of its most important and secret eavesdropping facilities. Located along Iran's northern frontier, they were a perfect window onto ballistic missile testing being done in the desolate plains of Soviet Central Asia. Months after the Shah's fall, Stansfield Turner, uh, Carter's CIA director, had begun negotiations with Chinese officials about establishing joint facilities in western China. It was more or less a done deal. There were only a few hang-ups and technical issues. Who would man the facilities? Would China be given access to the technologies at the facilities? The issues were quickly settled. The next order of business was the Afghan project. China had been selling Soviet equipment to the Mujahideen. Casey told his hosts about the problems with the Egyptian equipment. He wanted to purchase more from Beijing. Would they agree? Yes, they said, again, with few questions asked. The director then turned to a more sensitive subject related to the Afghan war, Soviet Central Asia. For years, Moscow and Beijing had been bantering back and forth, trying to exploit ethnic tensions on each other's side of the border. On December 4, 1980, the prime minister of Kyrgyzia, Sultan Ibramov, had been murdered in his sleep in a resort town east of Frunz, only 100 miles from the Afghan border. Officials of the KGB believed that he was assassinated by Muslim extremists and had implied Chinese participation. Beijing had denied any involvement, but the the problems were not only on the Soviet side. On the Chinese side of the Kyrgyz border, in the province of Xinjiang, there was also tension. In October 1980, after reports of discord and unrest, a member of China's Politburo was sent on a two-week tour of the remote province. On October 16th, Wang Zhen called for increased security because of the, quote, new czars across the border, who were quote, stretching their tentacles into China. Zhen had been able, while in Xinjiang, to listen to propaganda radio broadcasts from friends criticizing Beijing and encouraging resistance to Chinese rule. No doubt the Chinese were doing the same thing. In fact, they had only recently dramatically expanded the reach of Radio Urumqi, which was being beamed into Soviet Central Asia. So Casey shared with his host leaflets that the Afghan Mujahideen were smuggling into Soviet Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. It was an Afghan project at this point, but Casey was thinking about backing it and turning up the propaganda a notch or two. It was sensitive because the Chinese might not like the thought of stirring the ethnic pot. After all, they might get involved in the imbroglio. Islam, like communism, had no borders. There was no guarantee that the message would not boomerang and cause problems in China. To Casey's delight, Chinese intelligence liked the idea and offered to contribute to the cause. They are soft in the South, said the director of Chinese intelligence. Casey himself couldn't have said it better. The New York Catholic Irishman and the peasant communist from Hunan province were reading from the same script. On the, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so yeah, uh, reading yeah, for the same read that script. Because yeah, that's one of the parts that I find yeah that I that I uh, picked out as well as being uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. Dangists, um, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, um, I don't know what's going on there, but yeah, 
Um, and it is interesting how this, uh, yeah, like, uh, it makes a note, I think it is in this part, right, that the, um, oh, I guess it's in a, a, a different part, it talks about how, uh, in general, like, the, uh, sort of, uh, sympathy of the Muslim world had actually been with the Soviet Union, uh, relative to China, because they had been, you know, uh, they had similar, uh, oppressive policies to the ones that they have now, um, but this, you know, uh, was an effort to kind of, uh, shift that, um, I'll see if I can find, uh, that part, but yeah, it's a very, uh, interesting thing, and I think that it definitely has resonances with, uh, the politics in, in the Muslim world, uh, right now, um, mm. and, but, you know, yeah, there's, a. Uh, yeah, there's, there's many, uh, like, in, in interesting components to it in terms of, like, how, uh, you know, the leadership in, in the Muslim world is positioned vis-a-vis, uh, China and, uh, and, and Xinjiang, mm-hmm. um, you know, and of where, course, where yeah, like Afghanistan was, I think it, everyone knows. Yeah. So like, uh, yeah. Um, right. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, and, and so I guess like, so yeah, I mean, uh, well, I mean, do we, do we want to talk, do we want to break down like the main planks of like this strategy and like what was Bill, what were Bill Casey's like biggest, uh, the choke points that he identified to take down uh, the Soviet Union in 1981. So obviously one of those was he wanted to escalate uh, the covert U S covert involvement in uh, the Afghan war, you know, against the, the Soviet army there. And that had actually been approved under Carter and Brzezinski and Stanfield Turner, I think, uh, in, you know, right after the Soviets intervened, um, probably in the last, you know, 1980. But basically, uh, Schweizer points this out a number of times that the original, uh, I guess, executive order um, or national security directive uh, from the Carter administration gave a mandate uh, to basically support the Mujahideen to harass Soviet forces. That was the language of the order. So, uh, you know, Schweizer makes a big deal about how, you know, the, the U.S. involvement from the beginning was not to, like, beat the Soviets or, like, lead the Mujahideen to victory because that was, frankly, a laughable concept in 1980. Um, mm-hmm. Like, there was resistance to uh you know uh to the soviet intervention and everything but it was mostly like rural you know uh peasants and things like that who had very old weaponry um you mentioned earlier like the the egypt problem they were getting some guns from egypt but a lot of them were like bolt action rifles and just like crappy equipment so they that's when they hooked up with china Uh, to basically get China to to bring in, like, Soviet weapons that they had, and then there would be plausible deniability if, you know, uh, rebels were killed. They wouldn't have, like, a fucking M16 with them, you know? So uh, the CIA, you know, wouldn't have its fingerprints on it, but Casey really wanted to, like, intensify that, and that took a few years, but then once they intensified it, it got very intense. That was one plank. Um, The second big plank was Poland. Uh, I think it's safe to say Bill Casey did not forget about Poland. Uh, he no. was, no, he did not forget about it. And no, yeah. he, he was convinced and, you know, Bill Casey was, uh, you know, like it said, uh, an Irish devout Irish Catholic and, uh, and also, uh, a Knight of Malta. 
I believe. Right. You know, yes. very, the very Catholic plugged in. Is a very uh, interesting part of all of this for sure. Um, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so he identified that there was like there was a potentiality, especially with the new pope um, who came in, John Paul II, Karol Wojtyla who was Polish um, and was pretty anti-communist to begin with, that, you know, uh, Casey immediately identified that he wanted to go to the Vatican and enlist their support to help use basically like Catholic rat lines to funnel support to the Solidarność, uh, the Solidarity uh, Underground um uh, revisionist uh, puppets of imperialism uh, democracy movement um, that was happening that came out of Gdansk in 1980. Sorry, uh, 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 showing my uh, my. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, anyways, uh, so so basically, yeah, like that was another thing of like basically uh, turning up the heat on the Polish government. Uh, both in how it dealt with like this solidarity movement and then also its financial troubles because Poland got into something that a lot of Warsaw Pact countries and Yugoslavia got into in the 1970s, which uh, I have to research more, but I'm inclined to say was not a very good idea, which was to take tons of loans from the IMF to basically kind of paper over whatever. And actually... In the 70s, I mean, if you ever do talk to, to you know, uh, post-communist uh, people who lived in some of those countries, the 70s are, like, universally usually regarded as kind of, like, the good times. Like, they were a pretty good era. Like, things were, you know, there was, like, a kind of cultural thaw in the kind of post-Khrushchev area, uh, era, but uh, the economy was, like, stable, and they had this kind of um, foreign capital that was borrowed to kind of boost like uh, consumer goods and luxury goods and cars and things like that. And, you know, I mean, like it, it was, uh, it was humming a lot. And, you know, the U S was like, you know, tripping over its dick in Vietnam and, you know, things seemed like maybe, so it, it wasn't wild to think like going into like 1980 that, Oh, the Soviets are just like, you know, they're teetering, they're ready to fall. Um, but there were like, there were some hard times coming, with paying back some of this debt and basically, uh, I guess, uh, the orientation of a lot of the Western European countries, uh, going, you know, starting out in like 1981, uh, was, was kind of more conciliatory and they actually were kind of on this cautious path of more economic involvement with the Warsaw Pact countries, places like West Germany, France, the UK, Italy, etc. And, you know, I mean, given that it was still kind of a, we're in the tail end of like this detente era, uh, they were, you know, basically Eastern Bloc countries had certain kinds of access to like the Western financial system uh, and Western governments could like give them loans and things like that. And so Casey like looks at this, and says, oh, well, here you go right here. We can fuck them on the debt that they owe, uh, more or less. And then use that to, like, exacerbate the social and political problems that are going on in the country. And then basically um, kind of dare the Soviets to uh, – well, first, I mean, the result that he did achieve from it is he got the Soviets for a while to uh, expend a lot of money bailing out some of these socialist countries uh, in lieu of, like, sending in the tanks and uh, occupying them. Poland went into martial law in 1981, and there was fear for a while 
that there would be a kind of like a Hungary 56 or Prague 68. Like basically if, if General uh, Jaruzelski, uh, the Polish leader, like couldn't get things under control, the Red Army would come in to establish control. And I guess uh, ultimately uh, they decided against doing that uh, and ended up kind of bailing out some of these countries. But uh, but the, there is a there there were some cracks in the foundation, and Casey was like determined to basically exploit them to the max. And to do that, he had to get the Vatican on his side. Um, so I think, you know, there was a really interesting passage uh, in the book uh, where he goes to the Vatican for the first time in in let's see. Um, I think right after he kind of got elected. Let's see. Well, I'll find it in a second, but uh, I'll just say really quickly the the third thing. Obviously, the Contra War in Nicaragua was a whole nother uh, plank in this, but the, the book Victory doesn't really get into it. But the other big plank, which, which we just recently talked about, was SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative. So actually, I mean, even though LaRouche's name is not mentioned in this book once, um, the, the the great LaRouchean idea of looms very large and is given quite a bit of credit uh, in this book as being something that really pushed the Soviets' backs against the wall and also functioned as like a very effective psyop against them uh, because they weren't sure how feasible it was or if, you know, and, and Gorbachev said is quoted openly as saying that, the the purpose of the SDI is basically to like intimidate us into spending tons more money on defense than we already are, and basically uh, you know uh, draining resources from every every other area of uh, of the economy uh, in this like crazy you know uh, madcap race to like catch up with the spooky laser weapons, and then it's going to bankrupt us. Which like eh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that's what did it on its own, but it certainly buying into like the hype of SDI uh, I think did not help because they, they did spend uh, they, they had a really tremendous military buildup between like 1985 and 1990 at the same time Gorbachev was trying to do Glasnost and Perestroika which just ended up ultimately being kind of a huge clusterfuck uh, for a lot of reasons but it didn't help that they had to like drain like throw all of this money and resources into like this laser beam project to like not be you know uh, outfoxed by America so Schweizer gives a lot of credit as basically um, hastening you know this whole process and Reagan was I guess like genuinely like really down with uh, Star Wars he loved it and uh and he wouldn't back down, you know. Uh, Gorbachev would like demand. That was like his first demand. It's like you have to stop this SDI bullshit. And uh, Reagan absolutely wouldn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but- Reagan's remark about Gorbachev was uh, really a standout in this book. Uh, that he said, like, yeah, he's a different type of Soviet leader. He is the first one who weighs uh, more than his wife. Yeah. Uh, pretty. Uh, yeah. Uh, fat shaming Reagan. Uh, yeah, he was fat shaming. He was being fat phobic, um, and a whole host of other things. But most of all, he was fat phobic. Um, and yeah, uh, very very bizarre uh, comment. Yeah, shows uh shows that uh, not much has changed uh, in this era of uh, faux forty five. Uh, you still have those uh, very uh, you know. Um, unacceptable uh, statements mm-hmm. 
yes he yeah. said he said a lot of uh yeah like he it, it does reveal his kind of casual uh malice that he has like for yeah. the soviet people like uh, you know i think he wrote in his diary uh very early on when uh, bill casey like dumped one of his like big rambling like mumbling lectures about you know the soviet menace that he said like i think uh I like I think Bill is right and like you know I think we we should do all these things like so that they they either have to say uncle or starve <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of like oh cool. no yeah for uh, sure he comes off as kind of a sociopath in this book uh mm-hmm. absolutely yeah um yeah uh, I mean maybe yeah. not kind of maybe just like a sociopath but you know uh, yeah he just uh really wants to uh destroy uh the Soviet Union uh yeah and to do so um yeah now uh, going back to like the vatican for a second uh it was yeah one of the um kind of uh earliest trips uh uh in i think 1981 where he went there and you know uh, pope john paul ii was very anti-marxist and anti-communist and reagan believed uh apparently that uh, the the Pope was the key figure in determining the fate of Poland. Reagan was overcome by the outpouring of emotion that emanated from the millions who came to see him when he visited Krakow in 1979. Uh, there were tears in Reagan's eyes. Uh, cool, whatever. So basically, Bill Casey goes, yeah, it also notes that the pontiff was a strong and vocal critic of Marxism everywhere. In March 1980, he gave a strangely worded speech in Mexico warning against the dangers of liberation theology, a branch of radical Catholic thinking that tied Christianity with Marxism-Leninism. Um, sounds kind of cool. Um, the Pope's speech positioned the Vatican firmly against pro-communist priests in places such as Nicaragua and El Salvador, all of Latin America for that matter. His views made him unpopular in that in 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 that church of communism, the Kremlin. Not only was he now the one individual with the highest moral authority in Poland, but he was also popular among Lithuanians in whose tongue he was fluent. Seemingly mindful of their plight, the Pope had uh, appointed um, the imprisoned Lithuanian Archbishop Cardinal Impectore in 1979, and the press wrote about the Pope as a threat to be managed or contained. His views and faith were, quote, infection for the present leadership in the Vatican. Uh, the Ukraine is still is an object of particular solicitude. Um, it is trying to use the still... Um, considerable active nucleus of the catholic church as a basis for extending religious influence over the population of the republic Uh, a ukrainian pamphlet a soviet ukrainian pamphlet titled in the service of the neo-fascists used these vehement words revanchists and enemies of democracy and socialism look with hope upon the new pope for he has made it his goal to unite catholics all over the planet into a single anti-communist force it is dictated not by anxiety for mankind and its future but by the desire for religious authority over the planet so they were not you know there was some beef going on they didn't uh they didn't like it but when casey went there he requested that the rome station set up a private meeting with agostino cardinal casaroli the secretary of state at the vatican and uh he had i guess he was a dedicated church leader who had been a close advisor to four popes. He had served with great distinction and favored closer normalized relations with the communist governments of Eastern Europe. It was Ostpolitik, forging in a slow but deliberate manner state-to-state relations between the Vatican and the communist bloc. 
Casseroli claimed he had a conflict in his schedule and could not meet the director. Casey figured the refusal was a reflection of the secretary's foreign policy. Casseroli had met recently with leftist rebel leaders from El Salvador and Marxist Palestinian leaders. There had been no direct request from the president for a meeting, so Casseroli could gracefully decline. He did offer to dispatch an aide to meet the DCI, but complete discretion would be required. Public disclosure of the meeting would play into Soviet hands by fueling speculation that the church and the CIA were plotting to overthrow Poland. Casey, never concerned, uh, never too concerned about protocol, agreed. They set up like a secret little uh, sneaky little meeting that nobody would notice, and he sent uh, Casseroli's aide came dressed in his church garb, with a cherub-like face and active eyes, he greeted Casey warmly and apologized for Casseroli's inability to meet with Casey. He appeared uneasy himself. After all, Vatican officials were not often seen in the company of the director of the CIA. Casey tried to ease his anxiety by making it clear early on he just wanted insights into the situation in Poland. And so he gave him uh, his, you know, basically a rundown of, uh, of kind of what was happening... The Pope was convinced that repression would come sooner or later. What mattered was the form it would take and how prepared the church and opposition would be. The food crisis was spreading and the strikes would continue to grow. The church hoped to facilitate the process of reform without inviting a clampdown, but minus Cardinal Vyshinsky, who had just died, it would not be as easy. After nearly two hours, Casey thanked the aide and asked him if Casseroli might be available the next time the director came to Rome. No, said the aide flatly. The cardinal thinks it best not to cooperate on these matters, or we might inflame the situation. It was an abrupt turndown, but it would not matter. The fact was, they were already helping with important intelligence. Casey had learned more about the internal situation in Poland in this one meeting than he had from all the briefers at Langley. And what he heard confirmed what his instincts were telling him and what President Reagan was willing to commit to. Although there weren't any hard-signed agreements, clearly in terms of gathering intelligence sharing it, the Vatican was very helpful, recalls Admiral John Poindexter, and events would soon unfold, bringing the Vatican into an even closer relationship with the United States, particularly where their interests coincided in Poland. Within a few weeks of Casey's departure from Rome, there would be an assassination attempt on the Pope. The President, Caspar Weinberger, and Bill Casey would see a veiled Soviet hand behind the whole thing. So would the pontiff. Oh, so, okay, so uh, basically the Pope kind of turns a cold shoulder to Bill Casey, and the Secretary of State doesn't really want to fuck with him because he prefers Ostpolitik. And then just a few weeks later, uh, a very sus gray wolf uh, Turkish neo-Nazi takes a shot at the Pope, and then that is blamed on basically the Bulgarian KGB, which actually, I guess, the Pope believes. Um, And thus, uh, once, you know, he believes that they had, you know, made an attempt on his life, uh, then he was more open to committing the resources of the Catholic Church to the basically underground CIA operations to support solidarity and to uh, undermine the government of Poland. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, it just seems a little interesting, the timing of all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, I think we might have talked about this a little bit before on our uh, The Suspicions of the Timing on the first, uh, on the October Surprise episode. If I'm not mm-hmm. uh, mistaken, we talked about some of, of this entry. Uh, definitely, definitely something interesting. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom 
that like uh, I think uh, is this kind of goes into like it shows like really you can see kind of in Casey's travel like the uh, way that this is all like uh, it, it stretches across like so many different domains and interconnects like all these different uh, areas like uh, there's a part that uh, I like that kind of deals with a lot of what we've talked about uh, both in Poland and in Central Asia um, mm-hmm. on 176 um, where uh, it starts off with him meeting with uh, Zia in, uh, 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 well, he meets with Zia in his presidential office, then he goes to meet with the ISI uh, in their Mm -hmm. command office. Um, So he uh, met with uh, Brigadier General uh, Mohammed Youssef, director of the ISI's Afghan Baru, and General Akhtar. Uh, The three sat down informally over some Afghan tea uh, and light delicacies. At a simple Mm -hmm. work table, they started out discussing the conduct of the war in Afghanistan. The arms pipeline was now working with only a few glitches, and the quality of arms arriving had improved. The Mujahideen leaders had finally agreed to some sort of unified political structure thanks to the hard work of General Akhtar. Now, it was only a question of getting greater cooperation on the battlefield. When discussions turned to the Soviet side of the war, there was an air of concern. 
intelligence sources in Kabul were telling the Pakistani ISI that Moscow was considering the vision of Afghanistan with the North becoming part of Soviet territory. The Soviets could not control Afghanistan, so they made a plan to divide Afghanistan into two halves, recalls Yusuf. They planned on exploiting the North-South rivalry within Afghanistan and claiming the North as their own. To counter the move, the ISI was planning to further enlarge operations in the northern provinces. Akhtar wanted to train thousands of additional Mujahideen on an emergency basis and send them to the northern reaches of Afghanistan. But he needed extra funds. Could the CIA help? As he always did, Casey agreed to come up with the money to attain an additional 6,000 Mujahideen for the north. But then the DCI raised the notion of pushing even farther north into the Soviet Union itself. Casey went toward the wall map in the office. In rolled up shirt sleeves and loosened tie, he began. The Soviet Union is vulnerable to ethnic tensions. It is the last multi-ethnic empire and eventually will face national challenges. Northern Afghanistan, as I'm sure he said, is a springboard to Soviet Central Asia. Pointing to the map and then looking at its hosts, he said, This is a soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. We should smuggle literature to stir dissent. Uh, then we should ship arms to encourage local uprisings. The room was completely silent. It was a shocking suggestion. Yusuf recalls being a little surprised at the bluntness of Casey's tone and suggestion. Mr. Casey was conscious of the Soviet weakness and grave vulnerability, and Mr. Casey was the first one to have openly pointed out this vulnerability. I can vividly remember that he used this phrase, soft underbelly. As you know, Mr. Casey was a highly diplomatic, secretive, and intelligent man who would never easily give away his true feelings. But surprisingly, he never tried to hide his built-in hatred for communism, and in particular, the USSR. <laughs> Putting together a military operation and carrying it into the Soviet Union had never been done. There had been no combat on Soviet territory since the Second World War. The diplomatic and military repercussions could be colossal. Pakistan as a sponsor of the Mujahideen could be target for military retaliation. But so could its sponsor, particularly if it became known in the Kremlin that this was a Reagan initiative. Yet the strategic opportunity was hard to pass up. How better to punish Moscow for its aggressive actions in Afghanistan than to bring the war to its soil? People living in northern Afghanistan, the so Soviet Central Asia, had much in common ethnically. They had more common blood than the people of northern and southern Afghanistan. They shared religion, culture, and history. Since the late 1970s, Moscow had become particularly concerned about the spread of Islam in the Soviet Central Asia. Units of the KGB and the Asian republics were tasked with aggressively clamping down on the flourishing underground Islamic revival. The Iranian Revolution and the Jihad in Afghanistan were encouraging acts of defiance throughout the republics. The next morning, having discussed several ventures in details, Bill Casey boarded his plane. He left behind the embryo of perhaps the most bold covert operation of the Cold War era. Pakistan had consented to plans to attack targets inside the Soviet Union. The Pakistani ISI began almost immediately exploring how the secret war inside the communist superpower should be launched. Several possibilities were being considered. Casey had suggested sending books and literature in first, along with exploratory teams, to get a feel for the local situation. Muhammad Youssef began discussions with the CIA psychological warfare expert about what sort of literature might be distributed. And Uzbek, who had been working for the CIA since the late 1940s, he suggested the Qur'an and several obscure books describing Soviet atrocities against Uzbeks. The CIA paid to have tens of thousands printed and brought to Peshawar. Six, uh, sorry, weeks later, Yusuf summoned a number of Mujahideen commanders from the northern provinces to his office. A comprehensive screening process soon began. Candidates for the super-secret probes into the Soviet Union would have to be completely trustworthy in both temperament and politics. The operations required dexterity and courage, subtlety and discretion. After completing the screening, Yusuf asked several commanders to make contact with Soviet citizens across the Amu River and do some investigating. Would the Qur'an be welcomed? 
Would any locals be willing to participate in future operations or share intelligence on Soviet troop movements or industrial installations? Could some locals act as guides? He wanted more information before any operations were started. At the same time, Yusuf summoned an outsider to his office. Wally Beg, a pseudonym, was 53 but looked much older. He had an ivory white beard and worn, tired skin. He was a farmer and an Uzbek who had lived much of his life in Afghanistan on the southern banks of the Amu. His house was near the northern tip of Kunduz province, near the ancient Afghan port of Sherkhan. As a boy, Beg regularly crossed the Amu with his father to meet relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents living on the other side. He used a traditional ferry, a flat-bottomed boat pulled by two swimming horses. He was familiar with the area. The Soviets had driven Beg from his home, killing two sons and a daughter. He was now living in Pakistan as a carpet maker. Beg had great knowledge of the area and would provide independent analysis of the situation. For our purpose, Wally's knowledge of the border region, coupled with his oath of vengeance against the Soviets, made him an ideal Mujahideen to carry the war over the Anu, recalls Yusuf. From Pakistan, Casey ventured to Saudi Arabia for secret meetings with King Fahd and Prince Turkey. Despite having circumnavigated half the globe, Casey was bubbling with enthusiasm as he landed in Riyadh. After a morning mass arranged in secret by his Saudi hosts, mm. he prepared for his meetings, right? The Afghan yeah, program was yeah. running smoothly, which would please Fahd. The king enjoyed getting updates on the war and hearing news of great victories, and the Saudi security program was progressing nicely. The agency had been able to tip the Saudis off about several potential threats. Casey entered the royal palace and was greeted warmly by the king. It had been a hard few months since their last meeting, and at that time, Fahd had been, a som- had been somber, even slightly depressed. The Saudi economy was in a tailspin, with oil revenues down sharply. Production had been cut back to stabilize the world price. Natural gas was an inviting alternative, replacing oil in a growing number of industries around the world. The Saudi role as a swing producer had worked well when the market was solid, but with rampant overproduction by a number of countries, that role was becoming very costly. Along with these economic woes, the tempo of Iranian intrusions into Saudi airspace was rising. And the visit paid by President Hassani of South Yemen to Moscow in November reignited lingering paranoia about Soviet designs in the region. Members of the Reagan administration, particularly the uh, Kaspar Weinberger and Bill Casey, were quick to allay such fears as they assured the Saudis of U.S. commitment. The most immediate security concern was Iran. At the suggestion of the NSC, President Reagan had requested the CIA launch a covert operation to overthrow Ayatollah Khomeini. The program was just beginning and was pretty mild. The CIA was establishing a chain of covert sanctuaries in Turkey for anti-Khomeini exiles. Distributing leaflets and making propaganda broadcasts was the extent of the activity. It was not expected to do much to the mullah's hold, the mullah's hold on power, (laughs) and would do little to offer comfort to King Fahd. At the same time, Operation Staunch, a worldwide campaign to persuade countries not to sell arms to Iran, was in full swing. Pushed by the Secretary of State George Shultz, uh, Staunch could be devastating to Iran if the pieces were brought into place. The diplomatic side was being handled by the state, but the CIA was taking care of the more delicate covert aspects of the operation. Uh, so, you know, uh, he goes mm-hmm. on with his meeting with uh, Fahd, you know, which involves uh, Prince uh, Bondar. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Bondar you know, makes uh, many appearances in this uh, yes, as the U.S. Uh, ambassador, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S., yeah, and the Stinger missiles uh, come up. But from there, uh, you know, well, this is maybe an interesting part uh, to read. Uh, Fahd suggested the United States consider an approach to the Iranians. The Saudis had historically tried to maintain relations even with their enemies. Fahd thought there might be benefits in dialogue, particularly with Iranian moderates. Casey gave a muted response to the suggestion. He then <laughs> pulled out some folio folders and placed them before the king. They were intelligence updates on the Afghan project and on the decision reached with Zia to take the war into Soviet Central Asia. 
This was about throwing off the Russian yoke and freeing the passions of millions of devout Muslims, Casey told Fahd. It would also convince Moscow to reconsider its commitment to Afghanistan by substantially raising the stakes. Casey wanted to bring the Saudis in on the deal and perhaps convince Turkey to commit his resources in the region to a joint operation. It wouldn't be too blatant or large, just something to stir the, sp- the, stir the pot. Fahd agreed in principle to cooperate, but wanted more specifics. Casey agreed to relay the plans through Turkey as soon as they were developed. The two discussed several joint operations, including destabilization operations against two Saudi foes, Libya and South Yemen. The CIA well, uh, had excellent nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, yeah. the CIA had excellent intelligence on the leadership in South Yemen, and they, if there was any more plotting against Riyadh, it was hoped the Americans would know about it. So from Saudi Arabia, he flew to Israel and Turkey, and then on to Western Europe to review the Poland operation. So, like, all back-to-back, chaining all these flights, he went there. He met in secret with Archbishop Luigi Poggi, a Vatican diplomat who handled conduct with the Polish government. Casey had hoped to meet the pontiff again, but the archbishop sat across the table instead. Poggi had just returned from meetings in Warsaw with the Polish foreign minister, Stefan Olszewski, with whom he had discussed the possibility of... Um, Olszewski? Oh, sorry. Olszewski. Uh, Yeah, Poggi, a whiz at Latin and church history, looked like a simple parish priest. But he was a sharp political thinker and had a solid grasp of the nuances of diplomacy, as well as a tough streak that could reveal itself all too quickly. Poland uh, was not far off in the discussion. The administration was concerned because U.S. intelligence sources in the Polish Ministry of Defense had reported that a renewed silent offensive against the underground was being organized by the Interior Ministry. It was going to take several forms, the most sinister uh, to include the killing of certain activists to sow fear in the hearts of anyone considering anti-state activities. A wave of mysterious murders was already passing through Poland. Uh, uh, I'm really, yep, yeah, this is the uh, uh, Grzegorz Pziemek. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, okay. Um, uh, yeah, so he was uh, the 19-year-old yeah, son of a dissident. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe you want to take over. Uh, uh, I'll just take uh, over. I'll, I'll flex names. my yeah. Slavic muscles here. Uh, yeah, Grzegorz Pziemek, uh, the 19-year-old son of the dissident poet Barbara Sadowska, was beating, beaten to death by police. Andrzej Grzegorz Gashevsky, uh, a solidarity activist who was seized <laughs> by the police and several days later turned up dead in a railroad embankment. Jan, uh, Jan Samsonovich, uh, another activist, was found hanging from a wall in the Gdansk shipyards. Uh, the Reagan administration was worried about the survival of the underground leadership, Buyak, Kuran, and also Wekfawesa. Uh, church leaders were also probably targets, Casey told Poggi. Um, or Poggi, uh, he asked the archbishop to relay a warning to his contacts in Poland and have them spread the word. Uh, unable to restrain or contain the underground, uh, the martial law government would no doubt try to decapitate it. Yeah, and, you know, at the same time, uh, so the, the church, uh, Poggi said, the church was divided between radicals who wanted to back the opposition fully and those who favored a more accommodating approach to the government. It was an extraordinary ad- admission about internal church matters from an archbishop, but perhaps he was returning what he saw as Casey's honesty about American limitations and weaknesses. The division between the church was exposed in the small industrial suburb of Ursus when more than 2,000 Poles packed into a Roman Catholic church to challenge the Polish primate, Josef Cardinal Glemp. The primate 
had reassigned Reverend Mieczysław Novak of Orsus, an outspoken supporter of Solidarity, to another parish. It was a squabble that was being replicated throughout Poland. The Jaruzelski government and its masters in Moscow no doubt enjoyed the spectacle. At the same time the church was experiencing division, the Polish economy was in bad straits. Podgy wanted the Reagan administration to know that sanctions were costly, $12 billion uh, by one Polish government estimate, and Jaruzelski was of the clear opinion that the economic deterioration was to the advantage of his opponents on both sides, solidarity and hardliners who believed he had not been brutal enough against domestic enemies. Podgy advised Casey that the administration should keep the sanctions in place because Jaruzelski would eventually seek some sort of compromise. The health of the underground was mixed. The government was holding about a 1,000 activists in all, the most important group of leaders at Makotov Prison on Warsaw's Rakowiecka Street. The group included Jacek Kuron, Adam Michnik, Zbigniew Romaszewski, who had set up Solidarity's clandestine radio network with CIA backing, and Henrik Vujic, a Catholic intellectual. But uh, they were writing letters. And so, yeah, that was a thing that uh, sanctions were uh, slapped on Poland, which... I mean, you see a lot of parallels to like what the U.S. government does today, to, uh, whether it's Iran or Cuba or Venezuela or Russia. Um, we are like extremely trigger happy now with our sanctions. We almost don't even try to the U.S. government doesn't even really try to hide um, uh, the, the sort of the weaponization of it. But yet they're not seen as something that is uh, like actual violence or you know, even bad yeah. in some circles. Like it, it's, uh, it's very, I'm sure with president Joe, we're going to see a lot of sanctions, but they did this and they, you know, they did this in the full, with full awareness that it was going to like tighten the screws on them at a very, uh, vulnerable time. Uh, so, uh, I guess let's see. Uh, yeah, uh, so I it was, it was in reaction to the martial law, uh, declaration in Poland in, in 81. And I guess that was a turning point for, uh, the administration. I'm reading page 68. It solidified mm-hmm. support behind an offensive strategy to roll back Soviet power within months. Secret directives would be signed, making explicit us policy to undermine Soviet power and calling for a comprehensive economic war to be launched and opportunities would be sought for sowing dissent in Eastern Europe. Uh, so shortly after the declaration of martial law, the president spoke with his advisors about Poland. Uh, much of the NSC was not included because NSC meetings were not considered leak proof, so they didn't want to risk anything. But at the meeting were Vice President Bush, William Clark, Secretaries Haig and Weinberger, Ed Meese, Richard Pipes, and William Casey. And there was a general consensus the United States had to send a strong message to Warsaw and Moscow. Economic sanctions were universally supported as a way of demonstrating American anger. But then Pipes raised the stakes. What about doing something proactive? What about covertly funding solidarity to ensure that the first anti-communist organization above ground in the Soviet bloc survived this harsh political winter? The specter of such a risky operation haunted the room. After a few minutes, Al Haig cut through the silence with his explosive voice. That's crazy. It just won't work, he said. The Soviets would never tolerate it. Solidarity is lost. Bush agreed, expressed concerns about inflaming Moscow, and counseled against any operation. Interesting, Bush. What are you up to here? Uh, Pipes, the only NSC staffer at the meeting, and a Pole himself, uh, yeah, okay, uh, explains a lot, tried to contain his anger. What worries the Soviets is the survival of solidarity, he retorted. They are afraid of an infection, that it will spread to the rest of the Soviet bloc, even Lithuania and Russia itself. You don't know the Poles, Mr. Secretary. Solidarity will survive. 
Weinberger, Casey, and Bill Clark voiced enthusiastic support for the operation, but the president, quote, didn't need any encouragement, according to Pipes. He immediately asked Casey to drop a covert operation plan. He not only wanted to free Poland, but shatter the myth of Soviet invincibility, recalls Clark. So that's what they, right yeah. in 81, they uh, decided, like, we're going all out on Poland, and uh, they, they right. set up, oh, and actually what's interesting about this, so he first went to the Vatican to basically try to get a uh, rat line set up via the church, but of course for you know uh, kind of like geopolitical reasons, they were a little bit uh, hesitant for us. So he actually, the way he set up the solidarity rat lines was through Israel. So you know another player in the whole Iran Contra yeah, like uh, galaxy where, comes like, in there. Yeah, to go back like a little bit to like the sort of later portion, like uh, on like one seventy six, like you know where he has this long sort of plane trip, like from Pakistan to Saudi Arabia, uh, and then to uh, uh, the Vatican to talk to to the Archbishop, like and the whole secret mass that he's like uh, permitted by. King yes, Bond, the Saudis you know, like, built. The Saudis like, like like had a secret church for him. I don't know if they built yeah. it for him, but they like offered to like secretly whisk him into like this Catholic church so he could pray. Yeah, uh, which is that's funny. like where I feel like you see like the whole like subliminal jihad like components of this, and you see like the whole like you know the way that this is like really like an eschatological sort of struggle, and like the destinies of these like great religions are being kind of like shaped. You can really see like the way that these formations. You know, it wasn't necessarily set in stone the way that things would shake out. Like, they were mm-hmm. being actively shaped through, like, the decisions that Casey and, like, the Saudis and, like, Zia were all making at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. how, you know, wh- where they thought the future of Islam, for instance, like, you know, and the Catholics are doing the same on their end. And I think that you can see yep. uh, the way that's borne itself out as well. But, you know, they yeah, were look at Poland today. Like, look at Poland and like Afghanistan today. You can see kind of how it worked out, like in terms of yeah, like uh, uh, igniting the, making, the flame of a certain yeah, kind of religiosity. Judgment, like, yeah, they were making a judgment about like what they thought was like, you know, and definitely they had reason. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think that like, you know, the stuff they were concerned about, like the reason why King Fad like really hated the Soviets, like. Uh, you know, because of, like, uh, his strong, like, uh, religious sentiment. I don't think that that, like, <laughs> was completely un... I don't think that's completely unfounded. Like, there definitely were, uh, you know, atrocities and abuses committed, like, especially in Central Asia by, by the Soviets. But, like, you know, it still was, like, a decision that definitely had consequences. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, was it really like for the best like you know i mean it's in a way it's a shame because like people like bill casey like don't really care like it's all and i think that people you know and the same could be said for china and really the same could be said for the soviets they don't really care like they see this religion as a tool and i think maybe even king fod is the same where he just sees it as something that's a tool like to be used like as a wedge for for geopolitical purposes but yeah like um yeah you know it's uh yeah, the like uh, the whole. I, like, I, I mean, uh, I, I like that. I like that take on it. Uh, so it's just yeah. that like religion was the real casualty of the 1980s uh, <laughs> on all sides. Yeah, well, the whole like um, religious landscape of like the future, like is really like kind of uh, unfolding, like in this process of like these decisions to like, uh, you know, end the Soviet Union, basically like the decisions that are being made, like are creating like, you know, and almost everyone 
is implicated and uh you know and there really is like a religious sort of symbolic dimension to like a lot of this stuff especially like in the interaction between uh you know through agents such as casey through like the their uh networks you can see like the sort Mm -hmm. of religious dramas playing out the interaction between islam and catholicism you know uh and uh yeah and basically all the components of like uh you know the the religious landscape and the the issues that we see like today like all the seeds of them are all there like there's nothing there's no dimension of like for instance like the you know the the outlook that muslims have in the world now that isn't being sort of laid uh or isn't bound up in some way in this process yeah yeah i mean especially if you look at the the iranian revolution as kind of the the kickoff of like this this very formidable decade in you know the kind of uh reorganizing uh of the like the role of religion in various societies around the world in Mm -hmm. and being driven by like geopolitical and various kind of like economic and uh, military and even like ideological concerns i mean it is interesting that you have basically at the heart of this like a covert abrahamic alliance of like right-wing catholics right-wing israelis and like right-wing wahhabi like you know saudis uh and then i guess you know the pakistanis as well um yeah uh, basically all kind of like and the egyptians yeah like a fucking player in this as well uh Uh uh-huh exactly exactly and uh, and then yeah even i don't know the the can the the sort of neo-confucian chinese in a way um Mm -hmm. I don't know if yeah. they're really repping uh, a, necessarily a religion uh, per se. Uh, I, um, I wouldn't even well, say they, they were repping Maoism like, are, at that point. They certainly are like engaged in like uh, religious concerns. Like, you know, the whole, the situation like in Xinjiang, like you can see the seeds of it like being laid and it plays like a role in all of this. Like the, in the whole idea of like Central Asia as being the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union and now mm-hmm. it's something that's played such a huge role in the, you know, uh, foreign policy of the United States and uh, in the self-image also of the United States and, like, the, you know, narrative of a U.S. empire in the 21st century is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, and and yeah, I like, think, uh, what, what did Bill Casey say there uh, earlier about, like how the Soviet Union is the last multi-ethnic empire and like yeah, nationalism are going to... Yeah, it's like, to... wait a minute, like what about the United States? But I guess maybe he didn't see it that way. Um, uh, you no, know, we like, are, I mean, a white supremacist uh, kind of settler Yeah, colony, exactly. Uh, so it's like, different. Um... In fact, it's kind of a, a nice credit that he's giving there to the, uh, the Soviets yeah. uh, a little bit. But, but the idea that, you know, nationalism is going to be resurgent and basically, uh, you know, multi-ethnic empires are kind of like weak and prone to subversion. And there's this wave coming. And I mean, I don't know if that that was just his intuition or what, but he was kind of right about that, that this like nasty wave of nationalism uh, came to the fore and played a large role ultimately in like destroying the 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 entire like Soviet bloc and the Warsaw Pact countries and now has manifested in things today where, you know, Poland is kind of like this like right wing Catholic, like nationalist country. You see what happens mm-hmm. in Hungary. Um, you know, you got like Russian kids running around being like neo-Nazis, which doesn't make any sense, but 
it's like uh or you know ukrainians like just ukraine in general like you know like is that what is, is that an improvement really uh all those bandera statues that they're putting up everywhere and their little you know jews will not replace us like torch rallies that they have all the time uh that mm. like the last three presidents now have intimately pretty much supported uh, in the U.S., mm-hmm. so yeah. you know, it's like it's a it's kind of like a dystopian. Uh, I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's also an interesting comment by Schweizer in calling like King Fod like you know shrewd but also like naive, like in, you know uh, in many ways. And I think that hmm. yeah, like uh, there was kind of a calculus that you know the Soviet Union they had all sorts of like you know uh, policies that uh, you know were. Uh, like you know obviously not like conducive to like uh you know the practice of islam in that area i don't necessarily think that like the saudis insofar as they were like hardcore salafis like really were um you know uh that invest it's hard to really believe they were that invested in like the you know uh support for central asian islam except insofar as they could like somehow exert control over it or like uh yeah. protect themselves from iran you know i think that yeah. that was like of course also yeah but the, and that, that yeah, comes like, in big uh in that that conversation i think fod had with uh with casey you know he basically the the thing he wanted to like always talk about whenever he met with casey was like the defense shield that basically had been promised by the u.s to the saudis i'm trying yeah. to find and the name the of it stingers, but uh right? yeah the quote, the quote he wanted uh, stingers to, yeah, yeah. Right, he says, uh-huh. it says, uh, Fod, deeply naive in some ways, but inherently, intensely shrewd in others, did not j- want just talk. He wanted something tangible from the president to let him know he could rely on Washington, right? So I think that that, and it's like Prince Bondar was asking Secretary of State Schultz for a formal written clarification on the president's commitment, right? Uh, yeah, we read yeah. this part, but just to like reiterate, um, you know, and he wanted the Stinger missiles, right? Like, so that to me like shows like, there is like that uncertainty, like can, like I'm throwing my lot in, with a certain faction in this, like, ideological struggle, you know, mm-hmm. like, I see, like, the future, uh, like, my, like, ability to shape the future of, like, my country, like, my religion, really, like, you know, uh, as someone who's, like, the custodian of the two holy mosques, you know, like, uh, <laughs> it, like, that, uh, you know, so, and this is all part of, like, a longer history, obviously, in Saudi, but, yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's very interesting yeah. because that you can see like that's where Muslims are now, like kind of caught between like really between like China, chi- like China's geopolitical orbit and the U.S. where like they don't mm-hmm. like and kind of like uh, between a rock and a hard place, really, uh, where like neither side like is, you know, very partial to like, you know, this continuing and at kind of at the mercy of like the same sort of people or their direct heirs uh mm-hmm. you know who are like kind of you know still running uh the the muslim world in in many ways uh you know or the same yeah sort of faction or tendencies are present you know yeah um, no for sure for sure um yeah. oh yeah i also just wanted to point out that uh that like you know it does mention here that like centcom was established uh in uh yeah so this is like in april 21st 1981 
uh, Weinberger announced the Rapid Deployment Task Force proposed by President Carter to develop a capability to deploy forces in the Middle East if necessary would be dramatically upgraded and expanded. It would become a unified command with its own forces, intelligence, communications, and its own unified commander responsible for all aspects of U.S. military planning and operations in the Central Region. The new U.S. Central Command, U.S. CENTCOM, would be much larger than the RDF, boasting nearly 300,000 U.S. troops. It was a nice security blanket for the royal family and a unique venture that symbolized just how closely Riyadh was wedded to Washington for its security needs and how important Saudi oil was for America. The new command was not part of any formal alliance such as NATO, and it had no treaties governing its role. To soothe Saudi sensibilities about the political hazards of U.S. forces based on Saudi soil, the headquarters and forces for U.S. CENTCOM would be located outside the theater. And, you know, basically uh, uh, that uh, that that was like a huge uh, thing to that that brought, you know, the Saudis and whatever closer together. And also is like how, you know, how central, no pun intended, has has CENTCOM been like in our lifetime as basically the, the main and the main war engine uh, in the Middle East, like after 9-11. And this all came out of Reagan administration, you know, trying to reassure the Saudis who were absolutely terrified. I guess there was a uh, there was a underground uh, Shiite organization called Al-Dawa, the call um, mm-hmm. that. Uh, that was, I guess, cooking up a plot to bring down the governments of Bahrain and Saudi Arabia uh, shortly before the announcement of, you know, CENTCOM, like several months before. Uh, But American intelligence got a whiff of it through some electronic intelligence and tipped off uh, Prince Nayef, the Saudi interior minister. Mm -hmm. And then later on, uh, they... I wanted to say it was... uh, what was the name? They 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 had an even more explicit thing in the Persian Gulf that was like a defense shield. I want to say it was called like Desert Shield or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. That basically uh, protected them and uh, made them like impervious to Iranian attacks. Um, and you know uh, that that desert shield i don't remember i do remember the i don't think it was centcom i remember the mentioning the singers but i'm not i don't remember desert shield desert shield uh, i think was an operation a campaign uh at some maybe that was like the prelude to the gulf war so it was named something else but basically that that came a little later in the mid 80s and basically you know i mean like we were like we basically provided the military as the praetorian guard for the saudis uh, uh you know in this stormy region they wouldn't have to worry about getting cooed or overthrown or invaded by iran and you know uh, the reagan administration was like very super about that Patrząc z niego na świat 
wreszcie zrobię ten krok Ostatni krzyk, łapędzia nuda I dalej nic w teatrze lalek Ogólnie mówiąc, life is brutal Poza tym wszystko one that I think should be included in the earlier conversation here. Um, mm-hmm. So it's talking about, you know, Casey's uh, efforts to get sort of China on his side here. Um, you know, uh, he says that uh, the president, you know, who had strongly backed Taiwan during the 1980 campaign, was beginning to see the merits of cooperating with the communist Chinese on several fronts. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, was Casey's view of geopolitics. That had been the case during World War II, when the Western democracies had fought off the Nazis and the Japanese with the help of the Soviets. You know, with just a little bit of a hand um, from the Soviets. Uh, anyway. Just a little um, bit. <laughs> yeah, a, a slight assist, you know, they were uh, alley-oop. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and uh, so for this reason, Casey wanted to work with them on Afghanistan. So there was already close cooperation between Beijing and Washington on a number of fronts. The electronic eavesdropping facilities along the Soviet border were proving invaluable. Technicians from the United States were secretly manning the facilities in the heart of Central Asia. We kind of talked about this a little bit. The Chinese Mm -hmm. were helpful in carrying out the Afghan program, providing Soviet bloc arms and other assistance. Casey briefed his host on the success in Afghanistan and the plans for the future. At the same time, there were growing tensions between Beijing and Moscow, particularly along the common border. The two communist powers were, among other things, fighting for the allegiance of the region's Muslims. The presence in inner Asia of 45 to 50 million Muslims distributed between the Soviet Union and China had forced the two to devise quote-unquote Muslim strategies that were both defensive and offensive. The Soviets have been aggressively working to sow dissent and penetrate the Chinese Muslim populace. An agent named Nikolai Petrovich Zhang and two ethnic Chinese had recently been picked up for spying. Yu Zhanggui, a Chinese citizen, was jailed for anti-state activities. He had reportedly crossed the border from China into the USSR in 1980 and been recruited by the KGB. He had been sent back to China several times to collect political, military, and economic intelligence. The Soviet effort was tenacious, particularly as it coincided with the thrust into Afghanistan. Soviet propagandists were targeting the Muslim population of Xinjiang province, using radio stations in Tashkent, Alma'ata, and Frums to beam anti-Chinese messages in almost all the Turkish languages as well as Chinese. Until 1980, the odds in the fight for Muslim loyalty had been stacked heavily in favor of the Soviet Union. Moscow, so this is interesting because, like, most, like, the sentiment today, like, you know, with not, not for no reason it, among mm-hmm. Muslims is pretty anti-Soviet. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, this is interesting context. Moscow could offer a higher standard of living while China required greater ideological orthodoxy. But in 1980, two things changed to make the Chinese more aggressive and successful in their operations. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan provided ample ammunition to the Chinese claim that the Soviets were anti-Muslim. Propaganda broadcast from China into the USSR consistently played into that theme. 
the same time, China made uh, important concessions to Muslim minorities, including the suspension of anti-religious crusades and the reopening of old mosques. Uh, Salim Anshue, imam of the Dongxi Mosque and the chairman of the Islamic Association of Beijing, was invited to Islamabad and elected, elected a member of the Muslim League. He had even approached the Saudis about building a new mosque in China. For Beijing, Islam was emerging as an asset, or at least a tool, to use against Moscow. So, yeah, uh, there's some more about uh, Casey, but, you know, uh, he was, uh, Casey said uh, he steered his conversation with uh, Zhu uh, Kizen, who is the assistant foreign minister in charge of relations with the United States, uh, to the, uh, what the Soviets called the nationality question. Without being too direct, he hinted that the United States was running a propaganda campaign aimed at Soviet Central Asia designed to sow dissent. Zhu said such an idea had merit and proposed possible cooperation. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, well, yeah, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, it, like, as I said, like, the sentiment generally among Muslims, uh, you know, in the West and elsewhere is pretty, like, anti-Soviet, you know, and for good reason. Like, you know, like, uh, community leaders who disappeared, like, you know, lots of bad things happened under the Soviets. However, like, you know, uh, it wasn't, like, necessarily, uh, the caricature that it's sometimes made out to be. And, like, even reading this book, which is not pro-Soviet, like, it's a really anti-Soviet book, mm -hmm. one does wonder, like, you know, if the calculations, like, had gone differently, like, how things might be. Because, like, China was sort of pressured by the presence of the, like, the strong Soviet Union to, like, make certain concessions. And the Soviet, like, they, like, whereas now... It's like you it's know, pretty, you're right, it's yeah. A very bad situation. Um, mm -hmm. you know, That's one of no, many like, of the kind of real politic. It almost reminds me of the argument when people lament how like uh, unionization rates have like collapsed in the United States, and it's like, well, silly. Uh, that's because there was like a looming threat of the Soviet Union there to at least like make capital capital a little bit nervous and want to give mm -hmm. some concessions like in the 1930s to workers and then as we saw like as soon as that grave you know challenger like left the historical stage they just like it, it turned the neoliberalism knob up to 11 and started privatizing and you know basically doing whatever the hell they they wanted to so it's like even if you're uh, and probably some a decent amount of people listening to this are, are rather sympathetic uh, to the Soviet position. But, like, you know, even if you're not, even if you, you don't necessarily think they were perfect or they had fallen into revisionism or even if they were, you know, social imperialists or something like that. I mean, the tricky thing is because China and the PRC and the USSR were constantly accusing the other of kind of being like revisionist and social imperialist it's hard to uh -huh. kind of like support all of them equally it's like so was somebody yeah. right in all of this or all these people just wrongly calling each other revisionist but uh but you can see just like the the existence of the soviet union whatever flaws it may have had um uh provided certain levels of stability and uh made other large powers in the world have to sometimes uh give certain concessions or uh or not bring down the hammer as hard as uh as maybe they would be want to do today when they're just simply is kind of like no alternative i guess if you're a muslim in china you know what what is kind of the alternative like to become a war-torn like u.s uh backed like 
breakaway state or something that uh yeah that gets like invaded by mercenaries or like you're in this other situation but uh china doesn't have uh i mean now it's just there's a bunch of small not very powerful majority muslim countries on its border instead of you know yeah obviously connections to russia but yeah like it kind of puts the lie to this idea that like you know when you see all these people who like you know their predecessors like you know king fad and like now we have mbs like Mm -hmm. you know he was like oh we need to do like when casey came to him and was like we're going to create this you know ecumenical alliance of you Mm -hmm. know the anti-communist christian u.s and like these muslims to, to defeat the atheistic soviet union you know, mm-hmm. and, like, their, like, policies toward religion were often, like, very heavy-handed, like, you know, uh, as I think he says, probably rightly, uh, you know, not uh, perhaps as much as China, but, you know, uh, definitely, like, uh, were problematic in, in many ways, uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of puts the lie to that whole idea when you see, like, what's going on now with the, like, direct, uh, you know, descendants, like, sometimes actually, like, biologically, or, you know, like, uh, the political, their political descendants, uh, where they're, uh, you know, they are rolling over for China, like, they can't say anything, like, they, you know, uh, like, people know that Well, that's going true, on, they, they, they have said basically know? nothing, they haven't joined, they're not a yeah. part of the new kind of, it, it's really more like the secular, uh, neoliberal humanitarian imperialists that are, you know, making it's the most the noise, thing. which again... Makes sense, yeah. like it aligns with their objectives and what they're after to do this. But then yeah. you see when mm-hmm. it's like not in Saudi Arabia's immediate interest to do that. Um, you know, yeah, they it's, are it's not kind the new of, under the sun where like it's the yeah. same thing of saying like, oh, you know, like, th- like you know, uh, pointing the finger at like who's anti-Muslim because like it benefits you in the same way that like you have the Soviet Union and and the China going back and forth, both of them being officially mm-hmm. atheistic probably neither of their leaderships thinking very highly of Islam or Muslims, but of course, like they're willing to accuse, like, I mean, you know, the people who like, you can see, uh, flags at like Uyghur flags waving at like Trump rallies or things like, you know, things like that. Like, you know, they, uh, obviously, but like, you know, none of the people like who, I think that Donald Trump himself, like ideologically and like the people around him, as well as like most, you know, politicians in America in general, like, you know, uh, don't think very highly of Islam, uh, you know, at, at most, if don't, if they don't like, you know, yeah. fear it, uh, you know, but they're yeah, still willing yeah. to, you know, use it like in the same way, you know, like, uh, even mm-hmm. if they would like to have it wiped out the face of the earth, like they're still, you know, so it's really, it's a nothing new under the sun situation, but like, uh, mm-hmm. in the new sort of geopolitical landscape, these people who like threw their lot in with the United States, like, you know, they, you can kind of see how they're reaping, what they uh you know or the they're not reaping anything they're fine but like yeah, the, the saudis are fine the umma, unfortunately the umma is yeah. reaping what they sowed uh you know mm-hmm. so no for sure yeah. for sure it's a it's a it's a sad thing maybe we'll, we'll talk a little more about afghanistan for a second and like the stinger missiles and stuff uh which yeah. were something that the saudis were very you know adamant about asking the reagan administration for and there was like a lot just as there was i think calls there probably were calls during the syrian war uh basically to give you know um 
what do they call the man pads too, which is, you know, more the modern version of the stinger to like, you know, out on this refrain and stuff. And there were the yeah. same concerns at that time where like, even within the CIA or, you know, the Pentagon, there was nervousness about like, you know, those getting into the wrong hands and things like that. And like, it turned out that, uh, it really was more, I don't know, like, uh, the entire training paradigm of the Mujahideen that, like, got into the wrong hands, or maybe it never got out of their hands to begin with, and, you know, there's that whole thing, but, um, I just want to mention a little more, like, touch on a little more, like, the economic warfare side of it, and how mm -hmm. this was, like, deliberately engineered. I noticed that a lot of the people in the Reagan White House were coordinating with people on Wall Street and corporate heads and uh, think tanks like the Rand Corporation to, like, figure out how to, like, give a death blow to, like, uh, particularly the Polish economy in the early 80s when this martial law stuff is popping off. And um, this is on, I believe, uh, let's say page uh, 69, or maybe it's not on 69. It's on 70-something. Uh, Anyways, uh, I have it here. Uh, while Casey had been putting together his covert action plan for Poland, Kasper Weinberger had assembled a team of economic experts in the Pentagon, held under the auspices of the Rand Corporation. It was sort of a classified gab fest uh, to formulate a strategy for virtually killing off a Polish economy already in poor health. Fred Ickel, Undersecretary of Defense, called in economists Henry Rowan and Charles Wolfe, old hands at Rand, and a few trusted outsiders, including Roger Robinson, then Vice President at Chase Manhattan Bank. Poland was already faltering on meeting loan payments to Western banks. The all-day conference, therefore, focused on the benefits and costs of throwing the country into default. A strong case was made for doing just that, potentially pushing the entire Soviet bloc into a financial crisis. According to Robinson, quote, the Pentagon was of a mind to do this. But the banker from New York argued strongly against such a move. There is a better than even chance that throwing Poland into default in this manner would actually relieve pressure on Warsaw to expend critical hard currency. A default initiative might also benefit the Soviet Union, Robinson argued, particularly if it was perceived in financial markets as a political move by Washington. There was also the possibility that a sudden Polish default could set off a worldwide chain reaction. Ironically, writing down, if not off, the $28 billion Polish debt might encourage the myriad of other troubled debtor nations to seek the same solution. Robinson added, playing out a pro politically di driven default scenario involved the prospect of instant replays of sovereign default throughout the world, beginning in Latin America. For those of us crafting the Polish debt rescheduling in 1981, it was quite clear that it was a harbinger of the international debt crisis to come. Um, and so I guess, you know, you can see right there that there's like high level coordination going on, um, basically uh, to like like inflict the maximum amount of damage and coordinate it so that it does not redound in any way to the benefit of the Eastern Bloc powers, which you know I guess all is fair in love and war, but like uh, that has a real material impact, and you know I guess it did. So I guess what they did was kind of. Um, not I, I forget exactly what they uh let me see what they ultimately ended up doing um i mean they ended up slapping sanctions on them and i don't think they forced them into default but maybe just let them bleed out a little bit longer i guess uh this see this also this was part of a larger strategy to basically cut off 
the Eastern Bloc from like Western technology companies and also from banks and things like that. And I guess uh, another <clears throat> really big plank, I don't know if I mentioned in the beginning, was the denial of like advanced technology that the Soviets had been purchasing throughout like the 1970s. Um, usually not through, uh, I think the, but they couldn't purchase it directly from the U.S., but they could purchase it from European company uh, countries or neutral countries. And so that's kind of what they were doing. Um, and a lot of this had to do with like nuts and bolts, like heavy industry in particular, the, um, something that like surprisingly is still a hot topic today, which is like the Nord Stream natural gas pipeline, right? Yes, it and is. you you found a uh, you found an article from just this last December that was about uh, it's interesting. I'll just read a little from it because it's interesting, like how exactly the same it is uh, to the fight over the Nord Stream pipeline in the early 1980s. So this is from like December 21st. Russia cries war as U.S. tries to kill Nord Stream 2. The widening U.S. sanctions on the Russia-led natural gas pipeline project Nord Stream 2 are a kind of hybrid warfare used by the United States, Vladimir Putin's press secretary Dmitry Peskov said on Monday. Quote, this is indeed a variant of hybrid warfare. It is used as a hybrid warfare, as a hybrid war by the United States, Peskov said. Asked about if the Kremlin agreed with a previous statement by Russian businessman Oleg Deripaska that the sanctions were hybrid warfare. Quote, let's take the sanctions against Nord Stream. It is a pure hybrid war that goes on like a war accompanied by unfair competition. The U.S. continues to try to kill the project by slapping sanctions on anyone or any company helping the pipeline in any way. U.S. sanctions have delayed offshore construction works as the United States looks to thwart the completion of the pipeline by broadening the scope of the sanctions against service providers and those funding vessels involved in the construction of Nord Stream 2 and including the project as a target of more sanctions in the U.S. defense bill. However, work off the coast of Germany, the endpoint of the pipeline, resumed earlier this month with the pipeline vessel Fortuna uh, laying a 2.6-kilometer section of the pipe. Um, and potential new U.S. sanctions on Russia because of recent cyber attacks, as well as plunging oil prices because of fear of a new coronavirus strain, sent the Russian ruble to its steepest drop since March uh, this year. And uh, so, okay, so this exact, almost exact thing played out in the early 1980s uh, with the Soviets. And, um, and so they identified right away that... <clears throat> I guess the Soviet economy, the way that it was primarily set up uh, in the Brezhnev years, was heavily based on like exporting uh, energy, exporting oil and natural gas. Uh, that was actually, I think, like uh, in the book, it says like eighty percent of their hard currency revenue came from selling oil. And of course, like since OPEC, you know, uh, uh, basically, you know, announced their embargo in 1973, all throughout the 70s, that's another reason why a lot of people in communist countries remember the 70s. The golden years is because the price of oil was tremendously high, which hurt the United States, uh, which was a heavy consumer of oil. Um, I mean, to some, it didn't hurt like the, the Texas oil billionaires and stuff. They had a boom. Um, that's how, like, Mark Lombardi's, uh, you know, uh, Houston Museum got funded. But in general, it was a huge boon to the Soviets. And so their strategy going into the 80s was to build a natural gas pipeline that uh, I believe would go through 
Czechoslovakia and then into West Germany and then provide natural gas to Western Europe. So uh, this was, you know, they, they were like getting on board. Um, let's see. Uh, they actually had two pipelines. They had the Nord Stream and then they had a really big uh, project known as Uringoy 6, which uh, uh, was going to be the most substantial deal in East-West trade history. Uh, and apparently, according to Schweizer, both Casey and Weinberger were, quote, obsessed by it. It was a natural gas pipeline running 3,600 miles from northern Siberia's Urengoya gas field to the Soviet Czech border. There it would be attached to a West European gas grid that would dispense 1.37 trillion cubic feet of gas a year to a French, Italian, and West German consortium. It was originally configured to be a strand, two, a two-strand line, providing Moscow with as much as 30 billion per year in hard currency earnings. To a country with annual hard currency earnings at the time running about 32 billion a year, it represented vital economic life support. Quote, for Moscow, the pipeline was critical to its economic livelihood. It is hard to overestimate the value that Moscow placed on this project, recalls former senior staff member of the Communist Party Central Committee, Yevgeny Novikov. Uh, And Fred Ickle says it was a cash cow, plain and simple. And so I guess strapped for foreign exchange without the technology to build and operate the pipeline efficiently, the Kremlin in 1979 looked to the West for help. The Europeans, anxious to develop an alternative to Middle Eastern oil, jumped at the opportunity when Moscow offered them 25 years of gas at guaranteed prices. In exchange, the Kremlin received a financial dream, as in the past, West West European banks agreed to finance the purchase of pipeline and other equipment, as well as construction at below market interest rates, guaranteed by their respective governments. At the same time, other West European companies offered to sell the same sophisticated equipment in exchange for future shipments of natural gas. As it had the 1,700-mile Orenburg Pipeline project, Moscow was using Uringoy 6 to raise credits in the West, in effect, double-financing at least portions of the project. Um, and I guess it was Roger Robinson, the Chase Manhattan vice president, uh, who was responsible for Chase's loan portfolio in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and Yugoslavia, discovered this, quote, double-financing scheme. Uh, in the late 70s, he was having dinner with a Soviet gas minister, He says, I asked the Soviet minister whether or not he supported borrowing money on the euro dollar market to finance the project. He laughed and said, I would never take out such loans. The gas deliveries to Europe pay for everything. The Soviet foreign trade bank apparently had failed to brief him adequately on its ongoing plan to double finance the bulk of the project, which further analysis proved to be the case. All the key Western imports were being financed through so-called compensation arrangements or straight barter, gas for pipe, gas for compressors, turbines, etc. And yet at the same time, the Moscow-dominated International Investment Bank was raising some $2.2 billion on Western credit markets and four jumbo syndications. Ironically, the loan documentation made clear that the proceeds were ostensibly to finance the purchase of pipe, compressors, turbines, etc., the arrogance was quite stunning. Uh, I guess Robinson told the CIA about this, but uh, nothing happened. Um, but then Bill Casey got uh, got a memo uh, after that, and I guess it, uh, you know, in their view, it this project would make Western Europe highly vulnerable to political threats of a Soviet shutoff of gas. Austria, Berlin, and Bavaria would be ninety to one hundred percent dependent on Soviet gas deliveries, and they were not being very open with their own publics about this fact. One American banker recalls a private session in 1980 with the West, Ger- West German Minister of Economics, Otto von Lambsdorff. 
he admitted to one of the participants that German dependence on Soviet gas could well reach 60%, not the ceiling of 30% cited in public. But don't worry, Lambsdorff said, the German public will not be informed of the true figure. So they set out basically, actually in a in an initiative uh, to basically uh, scuttle this deal somehow. They went around and basically tried to go to various European governments arguing for alternatives such as U.S. coal, synthetic fuels, and Norwegian natural gas. But the Europeans uh, apparently weren't buying them. And I guess, you know, Alexander Haig was willing to give up on it. But Casey and Weinberger, they thought the pipe was the pipeline was too important to let it pass. And, uh, you know, they basically, you know, set it on this mission and they appointed uh, uh, the I think his nickname was the Prince of Darkness. But Assistant Secretary of Defense Richard Pearl, the wily defense intellectual who wanted to make take a tough anti-Soviet line on everything. He brought uh, CIA analyst Benson on staff and began hiring consultants to come up with alternatives. Some of the ideas were frankly absurd. One consultant claimed the Dutch were sitting on huge reserves and that Europe could be self-sufficient <laughs> in natural gas. Another suggested a Trans-Africa pipeline from Algeria. Still another proposed a pipeline from Iran, Turkey, Greece. At the agency, Casey put analysts to work on various aspects. The Office of Soviet Analysis focused on the, the benefits to the Soviets of hard currency and favorable credit and their ability and on their ability to build the pipeline without outside help. I want to see where and they... It was really the Saudis they ended up going to, right? Like, that was a big sort of aspect of, like, their sort of the alliance they set up was the idea that, you know, they would be able to have this oil supply from them. Like, prior to... Like yes. this, you know, yeah, like they really yeah, yeah. zeroed on the Saudis as like a, you know, an energy source, like a huge ally on that front. And like the whole, like the U.S.-Saudi alliance, like really cemented in like during mm-hmm. this period as part of this larger yeah. like struggle for energy. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and that would be like the the second death blow of this like energy aspect of the uh, the Casey plan is basically to persuade the Saudis, which took several years, but then in, in between 1985 and 1986, uh, the Saudis finally consented to do this, which is basically to uh, massively ramp up the production of oil in Saudi Arabia so as to basically crash the world oil, the global like uh, oil price, like the price of spot oil around the world. Um, I believe they, they more than quadrupled their production uh, by 1986. And actually for a, for a variety of reasons uh, because of what it did to the, Oh yeah, this was done semi-coincidentally with the U.S. Uh, devaluing the <clears throat> devaluing the dollar, which allowed the uh, Saudis to actually make money on this, uh, even though they were cratering the global price. Which basically that was a huge turning point in the Soviet Union that put a massive financial crunch on them because it basically took away a huge source. I mean, we're talking about eighty percent of their hard currency earnings come through the sale of oil. And then the price of oil uh, goes down, like, I want to say it went down, like, almost, like, you know, two-thirds or 75%. Like, it it absolutely collapsed, which also was a boon in the domestic political sense for Reagan, because it basically, because our economy was so heavily reliant on oil, even though maybe some of, like, Bush's uh, Texas oilmen 
didn't love it all that much uh, for most of the country. It was like getting a big stimulus. You know, gas was like incredibly cheap all of a sudden. And so it led to like a little bit of a bump in the mid 80s that uh, probably, you know, in, in Reagan's second term that gave people probably along with like the massive deregulation and expansion of like personal credit and debt uh, made everybody feel like it was morning in America. And it was like, the you know, that and the cocaine that Bush was bringing in, you know, really contributed to things feeling like like things were going great. Um, but really what it was is like this arrangement that uh, that that the Reagan administration had repeatedly brought up to the Saudis as like it would be really, really cool if you did this. And, you know, it would kind of help all of us in our greater objectives mm-hmm. to like undermine the Soviets by and also the the other enemies as well, like Libya and Iraq um, and Iran, for that matter, like all the other because the Saudis had the most oil. So they were able to just pump out as much of it as they wanted and still kind of make a killing off of it. Whereas like all of a sudden, Gaddafi didn't have as much money to play with, you know, Syria didn't have as much money, you know, etc. And that really was like a game changer. Yeah, for the Soviets. Um so yeah. it, it's hard to under and at the same time the other big thing was like a denial of technology so the u.s started i guess they hadn't been fully doing this but like i read in that Nord Stream 2 article they started doing this on like absolutely everything across the board so not you might think okay military technology that would or, or computer technology was a big one that they went after um and particularly these kind of third-party companies they basically started saying if you're a technology company in the uk or west germany or norway or something like that that you can't do business with the united states if you do any business with soviet people or eastern bloc countries so basically it you know we're, we're making it illegal for you to go do business with the eastern bloc and uh i'm trying to see here what the the actual like embargo uh was um while you look for that, this is an interesting mm-hmm. part about what we were just talking about, like vis-a-vis the oil markets that I think uh, kind of, you know, illuminates some of what we were uh, talking about. And I, it's interesting to read this, like, while thinking about, like, people in the recent administration in the U.S., like, reading this book, because you can kind of mm-hmm. see, like, how, like, you know, uh, I'm thinking about the orb picture and all that stuff, like, the terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like... <laughs> uh anti-terrorism like center or whatever um Mm -hmm. so yeah casey is flying around uh in his uh you know a black unmarked plane as we mentioned did we mention that uh, yet that he that he repeatedly flew around in like an unnumbered jet black yeah like a a dc9 or something yeah um (laughs) which had a hotel uh, which had like a full hotel suite like built inside of it so he could basically live on the plane and fly around covertly to all these different countries so yeah (laughs) so uh yeah casey came to the saudis uh bearing gifts he like uh and the saudis you know at the time they were uh really afraid uh for various reasons they were afraid of iraq they were afraid of iran as we mentioned they were afraid of the soviets too that they would like try to come get their oil you know because they Mm -hmm. uh when there was a soviet invasion of afghanistan they're like oh are they gonna try to come into the persian gulf and take our oil so uh and in addition to that everyone hates the saudis like and for good reason so like including as you mentioned like uh factions maybe uh that wasn't uh the group that you mentioned but there definitely were factions within their own country that hated them uh, and they definitely saw that something similar to what happened in iran 
could happen to them. Um, mm-hmm. And they were looking to the United States to protect them, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, yep. to save them. And Casey came to them and he gave them some intelligence on South Yemen. He said, mm-hmm. uh, it was a present the, pr- uh, the prince has never received. Uh, says Schweizer. Transcripts of secret national security agency intercepts. South Yemeni officials have been receiving communiques about a band of Saudi separatists who wanted to help overthrow the royal family. Uh, there you go. The Yemenis had agreed mm-hmm. to work with the squad, and they were being trained in a desert compound outside the capital. Casey gave the intelligence and the operation to the prince as a gift. No strings attached. Uh, then he pulled out some other papers and slid them across the table. They were copies of CIA top-secret reports on Soviet oil production. They weren't anything fancy, and the prince probably had better intelligence on world oil production than anyone in the agency did. But they were a useful prop that would prove Casey's point. Moscow is financing its world empire through oil exports, Casey began. He had taken off his coat to get down to business. Uh, I wonder where all these flourishes come from. Like, is Prince Turkey, like, telling Schweizer, like, yeah, they took off his coat. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Turkey was eyeing the reports. Uh, they made a killing in the 1970s when the, prince went through, uh, when the price went through the roof. Every time the price goes up $1 a barrel, it means $1 billion a year hard currency for Moscow. We can't afford yep. to have that happen again. What Casey was trying to do was send the prince a message. No single world oil producer had a greater effect on world oil prices than Saudi Arabia. At the time, it accounted for 40% of OPEC's production. It also, unlike other producers, had ready, easy access to huge oil reserves. That meant it had production flexibility that would allow it to greatly influence world oil prices. There was an oil glut of 2 to 3 million barrels per day on world markets. A majority of OPEC countries were pushing for the Saudis to raise oil prices from 32 to 36 a barrel while cutting exports. By raising issues of oil pricing and U.S.-Saudi security relationship in the same conversation, Casey was in effect saying that the two were related. It was an element of the Reagan strategy. We wanted to lower oil prices, recalls Weinberger. That's one of the reasons we were selling them arms. The prince thanked Casey for the reports and mentioned in general terms that Riyadh had already announced a more moderate oil pricing policy. It serves our interest to have the U.S. economy recover for you to be robust, strong, said Turkey. We will not be pushing for higher prices. Riyadh would resist any pressure to cut production and increase price, he assured his guest. Uh, after, three, after three hours, the meeting broke up. It had gone very well. Both men were pleased. Turkey had found someone who seemed sympathetic to all his requests and concerns. Casey had found someone who shared his anti-communist impulses and was willing to work with an America that had recently proved unreliable. Most important, mm-hmm. perhaps, one of the cornerstones of the secret war against the Soviet Union had begun to be constructed. Saudi Arabia, vulnerable and fearing for its survival, was looking to the United States for security protection. The United States uh, would willingly offer it in return for Riyadh serving Washington's interests in world oil markets. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, Schweizer notes that the black unmarked plane then took off and flew right to Tel Aviv. Uh, you know, so there you so go. I mean, talk uh, about doing the Abraham Accords like way back in the day, he, right? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is yeah, yeah. this is the real thing. This is breaking the kayfabe of the time. Oh, the Saudis and yes. Israel don't like each other. But there he is. Yeah, I mean that that that's yeah. the really like the the number to keep in mind. There the is like of the is, plane, like you know, belies like all you know this black unmarked plane like scooting around. You know, it like uh, it's the ultimate uh, liminal. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's like very. Vector, you know, subverting. It's very these, like a, uh, a queen You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Very. He's yes. the devil. His you know, flying around. Uh, yes. It really is. It's quite it's a magical. Black, it's, a, it's a broomstick. It's a broomstick. Uh, yeah. Broomstick. Yeah. And um, it, like, so yeah, that, that number though is like really important. So like for every dollar, every change, 
every dollar, single dollar change in the spot price of oil equaled a billion dollars a year in hard currency earnings for the Soviets. So like, I think, uh, for, so by it going down like $60 or something was like $60 billion was like vaporized immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, just to, uh, and, and, you know, then, and then they were unable to basically build these pipeline, these two big pipeline plans they had set up at the beginning of the eighties, uh, for a couple different reasons, including the technology embargoes. Um, and you know, they tried just to give an example, uh, here on like 82 and 83 of like how granular this strategy was. Um, the intelligence analysis being done at the NSC indicated the cutoff of U.S. technology in the short term was critical to the pipeline project. Moscow had purposely developed a purchasing strategy for the pipeline technologies it would need from the West with the hope that the deal would therefore be embargo-proof. The Kremlin was signing agreements down to the subcontractor level to ensure that the Uringoy pipeline construction would go ahead despite objections from Washington. However, it inadvertently overlooked a critical link – the rotor shafts and blades driving the gas turbines for the 41 compressor stations along the 3,300-mile line. These parts were made by General Electric, which was now prohibited from providing them. The Soviets could find an alternative to the GE rotors, but the search would delay construction and increase costs considerably. A 30-member Soviet delegation based in Cologne was tasked by Moscow to find an alternative. It quickly identified Alstom Atlantique, a giant French machinery maker. It was the only other company producing the rotor blades and chaffs, and they were under license to GE, based intellectual property, cool, uh, getting approval for purchase of the French blades and shafts might prove pretty easy. In most European capitals, the agreements were fudged. The Europeans interpreted the NAC agreement, concluded in January 1982, that Europe would not undermine U.S. sanctions as covering only deals in which American companies were the main contractors, not where they served as subcontractors. So the French government gave the go-ahead to Alstom Atlantique to supply the technology to Moscow. Uh, quote, it was evident between January and June of 1982 that the Europeans had dismissed the NAC agreement and had begun replacing U.S. suppliers at flank speed, recalls Roger Robinson. This despite a solemn pledge not to undercut American sanctions during the period of Soviet-sponsored repression in Poland. Um, additional intelligence reports confirmed that pipeline sanctions were coming at a time when they could have the maximum effect as an economic weapon. On January 25th, uh, intelligence of the NSC indicated how serious the Soviet cash crunch really was. It included figures in Soviet bank deposits in the West compiled for the bank and international settlements in Basel. Soviet deposits in Western banks had fallen from $8.5 billion at the start of 1981 to about $3 billion at the end of the year. Soviet trade figures were equally dismal. In 1980, Moscow had experienced a $217 million trade surplus with the industrialized non-communist countries. But in 1981, that had turned into a $3 billion deficit. The gambit over Poland, pushing Moscow into the role of financial guarantor, had been timed perfectly. The financial markets would become much more cautious in their dealings with the Soviet bloc. You know, I mean, so you can see like that the screws are turning now, even down to like the rotors that they need for the pipeline. It's like that type of shit. Like when we talk about, yeah. I don't know, when you talk about like like imperialism and like how it's the little tricks that it does, it, it does go down to this level of like kind of like uh, it's not quite corporate espionage, but like, you know, extending its tendrils down to like the lowest level that like you cannot build this pipeline, even though like we technically 
shouldn't have the authority to decide what like Europe and like Eurasia do with like their you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it I just kind of well, makes like it very obvious. Like, it's like, we, yeah, like it's all about just having more dominance. Like uh-huh. that's, you know, both the means and the end, uh, is yeah. just being able to like exert like that level of control. And like that struggle, mm-hmm. like really continues. And, uh, yeah, we're, yeah. And I mean, gonna, it's, well, it's know. interesting to note that even super, uh, Putin's bitch, uh, president Putin's uh, bitch who just left office yeah, today. Last time I, ch- yeah, last time I checked that article is from, uh, Putin's December poodle. 2020. That, that, yeah, yeah. Putin's poodle. I'm trying to remember my lib um, names. Uh, uh, here. yeah. Okay. Uh, Vladimir's right. butt boy, um, yeah, yeah etc. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. the who could forget all those great names, but basically, you know, uh, when butt boy, yeah, the classic one, yeah, right. okay. but um, like when Peskov yeah. is saying that like uh, the United States is engaging in hybrid war against us, um, who was president like you know during that? It was yeah. like it was Trump, so like clearly, there's like a mm-hmm. continuity. Uh, over the years of and I remember this during the Obama administration most people or a lot of people like forget this but I mean really both Syria and Ukraine a lot of the beefs that kicked up you know if you wanted to like you know look beneath like the the service of the spectacle and look at the geopolitical things that kind of like catalyze these events it was all about like pipeline projects like you remember there was that whole thing about whether or not the that like uh, Qatar would be able to build a natural gas pipeline you know through right. Syria uh, and uh, mm-hmm. B- Bashar said no and then voila there's like a you know civil war in Ukraine it was a similar thing i remember following this big you know, debate over like, I think it was the Nord Stream, uh, uh, Nord Stream 2, I think. Uh, but basically a part of it like had to go through Ukraine to get into mainline Europe. And for a lot of similar reasons to why like the Reagan team was against it, they wanted to like, you know, basically, you know, that that represented uh, power and, you know, influence. And it would be connecting uh, Russia more closely with the EU economy. And they basically, you know, I think part of the reason why they wanted to peel off Ukraine and make it a like a pro-Western kind of EU country is so then they could have, they could be able to decide to not allow that pipeline to like run through Ukrainian territory and it was when ukraine rejected they i remember they they both had like a deal like putin offered them a deal and the eu offered them a deal and the u.s was pressuring them to take the eu one and then they went with putin and then like two months later like all these nazis uh show up and like uh you know all these like tim pool uh einsatz group and kids uh you know stormed the maidan and uh you know it, it's now it's a it's all hell but you know they're they're still but they're still being like they're still trying to stop russia from making this thing with germany like even two months ago they're still being like no we don't want russia to become like the natural gas supplier to the eu uh we don't want that and so i think like even with a lot of the anti-russia stuff today like it's all really about you know these like uh kind of infrastructural like you know uh kind of mm-hmm. kind of things you know and uh and yeah, you know russia will always be uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah energy yeah, and oil sure. obviously i mean uh you know and it's it's interesting that like prince turkey pops up in this so much he's he was the head of saudi intelligence and uh as much as anybody in the royal family has had like 
probably the most named person aside from Bandar as like giving money to like hijackers and like funding Al Qaeda and like doing all these things and maybe doing nine 11. Um, yeah. and you know, of <laughs> yeah, course that had all kinds of implications for energy. Designed, like right before nine 11. Uh, Oh yeah, that's know, right. That's, he did. Yeah. The yeah, Turkey bin Faisal. From, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. yeah and you know and those guys i mean yeah those guys were kind of the young bucks in the 80s like dealing with the reagan administration and the bushes and everybody and in this like world anti-communist crusade that bill casey was kind of getting together and uh you know you have to wonder i mean this is like this is the this is another wing of the contra enterprise and like the shadow world you know of uh maybe mr global if you will i don't know um <laughs> Um, I mean, this is, yeah, Mr. you know, um, yes. Uh, I mean, I feel like Mr. Global's I mean, lurking in the, in the, in the margins of this story when, whenever Bill Casey goes to wall street and gives like speeches where everyone's just, I mean, he's Bill like treated Casey, like a celebrity in a way is Mr. Global, you know, he's literally like circumnavigating the globe, like in, you know, a matter of hours in his black jet. He is yeah. like that, like, that I mean, that's like where like yeah, I mean, I you really like can see like in the movement like uh, how like these networks like operate and how like these places that are so disparate and that we never like consider in the same breath like Poland and Saudi Arabia like can be connected as part mm-hmm. of this like a program which really is driving like you know the whole like real policy and direction of like America as you know United States as like a you know a geopolitical entity it yeah mm-hmm. and uh yeah and i think that you definitely can perceive like the same sort of thing happening in like the i mean the like there's obviously we've talked about how like this has a lot of a lot of the seeds are visible in this story of the geopolitical situation today naturally but you like uh, and but things obviously have also shifted around a bit uh but you can kind of see the same things uh, still playing out, you know, uh, Saudi mm-hmm. and Yemen. Um, yeah, you mentioned the yeah. Abraham Accords, uh, uh-huh. you know, but now maneuvering against China, like, yeah, and the absolute the huge yeah. concern with energy that, you know, has changed and now has taken on the sort of uh, climate-related tenor, uh, or at least the veneer of, like, uh, climate concern. But under, like, that is, you know, another a new sort of, uh, like, uh, permutation or facade uh, for these uh, these this you know fixation with this all important thing of, of the energy supply um, you know even in the kingdom like in Saudi Arabia like the sort of diversification of the economy and mm-hmm. uh, you know the position towards Iran and the, the like even the nuclear deal in a way the Iranian nuclear deal that like you know uh, there's been a lot of like shuffling around on could be seen as having to do with this uh, because oh, like, yeah, Iran well, really it, never yeah. wanted to develop weapons. Like, you know, yeah. it was about, like the idea, like if they were going to develop anything, it would be for power. But, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's yeah. funny how everybody knows what like the deterrent effects of the realistic deterrent effects of nuclear weapons are. But I feel like the the entire discourse from both like uh, Democrats and Republicans on like Iran or uh, the DPRK having nuclear weapons, it's all predicated on the assumption that like these guys are fucking sickos and madmen and they're going to have a bomb. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's off that like Tom Clancy, like some of all fears 
uh, ma- like paranoia that these guys are nut jobs that are just gonna like lob an ICBM to into yeah, like they're Riyadh gonna destroy when Israel. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, yeah, they're gonna never, they're gonna nuke Israel. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. No, no one is uh, like no one is no, like oh, right, you know, they're right. gonna bomb. They're gonna nuke right. Saudi Arabia. They're gonna nuke those worthless Arabs. No, they're gonna destroy precious Israel. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'm sure. Know, the, I'm but, sure the House uh, of Saud is like terrified that that would happen. Uh, but in terms of the public uh, messaging, it, it that is the sum of all fears yeah. is that you know and, Israel will be wiped like, off the map. The whole, and, the whole idea that like Iran is like fanatically like desperate to build a nuclear weapon and like you know just really like foaming at the mouth to build it like is a lie, like that yeah. like isn't really true. Like uh you know like not to say like you know there's nothing wrong with Iran you know like they don't do anything bad but like just saying like uh that's false uh that like they're just like frothing to build this nuclear bomb like uh that's like just complete of course like that's not, that doesn't comport i mean you could say like uh you know these tricky persians they're always lying you know like uh but that's the level that it's gonna have to operate on the <laughs> idea that they're like you know it's gonna well, have to just you know be, like, yeah and lying, then also you know uh yeah and the yeah, other mind-boggling they, they, thing they about it is that everybody like, you know they just hate those jews so much they just want that but like that yeah that's not like they've you know that's not what they've said you know, uh, so of course, of course. Well, yeah. you know, it, it, uh, of course, the conflation of whenever anyone's saying like Israel will like be erased from the map as in like it will cease to exist as like a, an ethno state oh, yeah, in course. its current yeah. form is al- always God conflated. Quote. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. always conflated with like, no, he literally means he's going to like nuke it until it's gone and then it won't be on the map anymore. And of course, he never did say that. Also, that like the there's a lot of like gaslighting going on and that it, it's a pretty much an open secret and 199.99% confirmed that Israel is nuclear weapons. So like, you know, yeah. nobody ever talks about that. Um, I mean, Pakistan, like, you know, is like, they're pretty like right wing Muslims. Like they don't like Israel. Like they have nuclear weapons, you know, nothing bad has of happened. Course. But, but these, like, these framing uh, devices are incredibly useful because they they just yeah, yeah I mean, they allow for the entire like, debate. Yeah, there's plenty of things like what you mentioned, you know, like what, probably the most famous is like Marg Bar Amrika, like things like that, you know, like saying like, uh, you know, death to America, like basically like it means down mm-hmm. with America. But it's like, oh, my yeah. God, like they want to kill every they want to kill American, every one like, of us. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, well, it's just like your stand, like, it's absurd, like, uh, you know, but yeah, like this whole idea, uh, and it's always been like, they're about to get it, like, they'll almost certainly have it, like, any second now, you know, like, if we don't stop them, if we don't, like, assassinate all their scientists, they're gonna get it, you know, like, uh, and yet, and they've been saying that since the 90s, you know, but never has this actually materialized, I guess, you know, just because of our brave troops. That's all that stopped it. Uh, not that they haven't actually been trying. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah.
gaslighting people, maybe should we just talk a little bit about the importance of the Strategic Defense Initiative and the role that that yeah, played sure. in all of this? Because I mean, yeah. our boy, our boy Larouche, uh, you know, it was all his he, idea. Yes, as we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, even though uh, I think we right. said his name does not appear in this book, but uh, and you know, I, I think main, a lot of mainstream historians would say that Larouche kind of like you know falsely inserted himself into this narrative and whatnot, but I don't know. There's some pretty eccentric uh, figures in the Reagan administration, and it would not shock. And by his own, I don't know, uh, like, like the things we read in the LaRouche episode, like he offered his services to the CIA in like the mid-70s. So he seemed to be pretty down with working with like the military intelligence establishment. Um, and uh, I don't know, like regardless of what, uh, like, you know, to what extent this is like all due to him, uh, Reagan certainly became enamored with this idea of the SDI and mm-hmm. basically, you know, rolled, uh, he gave a very famous, um, address about it. I think where he had like pictures and stuff. And I remember hearing about it when I was like, maybe in high school, maybe we learned about it. And my, imp- my first impression that I got from kind of the mainstream narrative is like, how wacky, like the SDI, like <laughs> Star Wars. And I, I learned that, you know, right. the media, like the liberal media kind of made fun of him for proposing this like right. SDI thing. But I don't know if like just mm-hmm. sort of like dismissing it as like a wacky old man Reagan kind of a pie in the sky thing and calling it Star Wars, which even that has its own weird resonance with like the movies and uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, you know, like, I'm why was about, it called Star uh, Wars? You know, I feel like, uh, especially on the heels of uh, our recent uh, UFO-related episode, I'm thinking about, you know, the connection between that, uh, especially that UFO people often draw, between, like, you know, Reagan's dream, uh, as we all, the most famous statement of Ronald Reagan uh, in the UFO Oh, world, like, how he, quickly you know, our differences would dissolve <laughs> if wow, faced by an alien threat. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, I, I mean, we just watched the movie by, the other day. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I sometimes but, think, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You that creepy um, saccharine so, thing. Yeah, you know, maybe, yeah, exactly. Uh, that he, yeah, like, uh, maybe it was all t- t- for that purpose. I guess Stephen Greer would say that it was so that he could, um, you know, uh, hurt the ETs who were just taking it and turning their cheek uh but you I, know, I guess, I guess all, so more realistically it was the psyop uh soviet union i guess but uh you yeah know, yeah know. well it yeah. it does seem to be i i i don't think schweizer goes so far as to say that like the sdi was like fake mm-hmm. like there was a uh, research put into it but in terms of the imminence of like how quickly it's kind of like you know four years ago when uber's like we're gonna have self-driving cars like next year and then everyone realized they just drive around and kill people and like aren't smart at all and you can't use them mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like a little bit like that. Like, okay. Yeah. Maybe in the medium term we could like develop this, but, um, but you know, he announced this, it like severely triggered, uh, the Kremlin and the, so, and people in the Warsaw pact. Um, and then, you know, he, he went on, uh, I think in, in 1985, he just started signing, uh, SDI collaboration agreements with Britain. And then in 86, uh, with Germany, Israel, Italy, and Japan, and, uh, started, you know, uh, making it kind of like this, uh, international research program, 
you know, like marshalling all the technology from these like relatively advanced, uh, you know, uh, industrial, you know, nations. Um, and mm-hmm. this, this was like very, very, this is also when, you know, the Soviets had like three leaders die in the course of like three years, which was really not great timing for given what they were facing, you know, Brezhnev died, I think in the, uh, he died in 1982. And then, um, what, why am I blanking on, uh, and drop off. Yeah. Yuri and the former KGB chief, uh, who was like only there for maybe a little over a year. And then he died. And then Konstantin Charnenko took over for him and he spent most of his time in ill health, kind of a working out of the hospital. And then in 1985, he died. And then we ended up with Gorbachev, the young hotshot, uh, 54-year-old uh, reformer. And, you know, I guess Gorbachev was, like, very freaked out and was really adamant. I think when they had their first uh, summit in Reykjavik in 1986, that was the core of Gorbachev's uh, demands to Reagan right off the bat was that you canceled this SDI bullshit because this is, you know, this is dangerous. You're you going to use this as like an, a kind of an offensive shield to basically, you know, start a war with us and then block uh, any nuclear retaliation. You know, it's unacceptable. And weirdly, I guess re- he recounts in the book, like Reagan had a certain like idealistic dream about, just the total abolition of nuclear weapons. He kind of, mm-hmm. he, he didn't personally like nukes. He, he thought they were bad. Uh, but he, and I think Gorbachev went there and like threw that proposal on the table thinking it might, you know, uh, it might prove too tempting to resist for Reagan. Uh, but then Reagan wouldn't give up. I think he entertained the idea, but then he wouldn't give up building the SR, the, the SDI um, anyways. And so, they kind of left it at an impasse and then Gorbachev ran back and he gave, you know, uh, he gave public speeches like on TV uh, around this time that said the uh, the SDI, you know, the the goal was to drive the Soviets into like kind of like a suicidal, self-destructive very expensive arms race. And, you know, so he was aware that like they were kind of trying to lure them into spending all this money, but then they went and, uh, yeah, it says right here as Soviet power was on the retreat in Poland and Afghanistan. This is around late 86. Uh, the specter of the American strategic defense initiative continued to haunt the Kremlin by late 1986. The project was beginning to show some notable technical successes. Funding had more than doubled since fiscal year 1985 to almost 3.3 billion in 1987. Several foreign governments had concluded collaborative research agreements with the Reagan administration, a particularly troublesome development for Gorbachev because it further legitimized the research program in addition to giving more brain power to it the kremlin was running a vitriolic public campaign against american allies warning against cooperation with the sdi research program and stressing that the system represented a reagan administration attempt to achieve world strategic superiority but on a different but on a different track this is interesting marxist leninist and soviet back uh, also grain of salt here this is schweizer talking uh, marxist leninist and soviet back terrorist organizations were launching military style strikes against sdi research facilities and scientists across europe between july 86 and march 87 
three senior advisors to the governments who had participated in the secret cooperation talks were assassinated. On July 6, 1986, Karl Heinz Beckhertz and his driver were killed by a remote control bomb outside Munich. Beckhertz was the director of research at the Siemens Company, an SDI contractor. In 1985, he had met with U.S. government officials to discuss the possibility of conducting SDI research. Uh, and he had served as an advisor to the Bonn government during the SDI cooperation talks in Washington. A letter left by the Red Army faction at the scene of the crime indicated that Beckert was assassinated because of his involvement in these, quote, secret negotiations. Um, then a worse German foreign ministry official, Ger- Gerald von Braunmuhl, was shot dead by a masked gunman while leaving a taxi outside of his home. He was a principal advisor to Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher during the SDI talks. And uh, the the uh, sorry the RAF claimed responsibility for that too, uh, proclaiming in an apparent reference to the SDI talks. Quote: Today we have through the Ingrid Schubert Commando shot dead the secret diplomat von Braunmuhl. Um, uh, wow. I guess uh, yeah. And then there was General Licio Gior- uh, Giorgieri of the Italian Defense Ministry. Uh, who was a director general of the Department of Space and Armaments Procurement at the ministry, was gunned down by two assassins in 1987. Um, he was a principal advisor to his government during the SDI talks. The Union of Fighting Communists, a faction of the Red Brigades, claimed responsibility for the attack. In a rambling 14-page communique, uh, the group said Giorgieri, quote, was struck down exclusively for his responsibility exercise following the Italian adhesion to the Star Wars project. The letter closed with the words, no to Star Wars. <laughs> um, so uh, so that that's kind of interesting, the sort of uh, clicking the support left terrorism button on in Crisis in the Kremlin yes. um, all yes. over the place. Uh, yeah, right. and, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, that I can't say for sure that uh, yes, like the KGB did all that, but uh, I I wouldn't rule it out. In fact, you know, if you're going to do any kind of terrorism, uh, I mean, not endorsing anything here, but you know, uh, targeting like, you know, uh, rich people and people that work for defense contractor companies is like a, uh, what a, a sophisticated approach. Let's put it that way. Yes. For others, to, well, like, you know, for terrorists who are bad that we don't support, uh, yeah. you know, yes. <laughs> well, uh, it, uh, there's a yeah. huge parallel there to, like, all of the Iranian scientists that have had very strange uh, assassinations happen to them that are probably uh, done by the Mossad over the last, like, 20 mm-hmm. years. You know, people that are involved yes. in the nuclear program. There's been a lot of those. So I guess this is not necessarily yes. anything new, um, mm-hmm. you know, yes. but it does. It, I think it does go to show that uh, that basically, you know, that, that they were taking this threat incredibly seriously and uh, and were kind of getting desperate. I guess also the like the KGB industrial espionage op- ops tempo like really kicked off in like 1986 uh, around the time that the SDI, you know, was uh, <clears throat> was coming about. And, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, speaking of Israel, another thing that it kind of reminds me of is the Iron Dome. Like the, oh, idea, yeah, yeah. like, you know, I feel like the Iron Dome, I've heard a bunch of times that like it doesn't really work, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or it's mostly for show. Uh, I can't like confirm that again because I'm not like an en- a weapons engineer and I don't really know like, mm-hmm. uh, like from the inside, like how well the Iron Dome works. 
Uh, but I've mm-hmm. read like uh, persuasive arguments that like it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not what it's touted to be. Uh, and it's kind of like more of a, a theatrical deterrent than I mean, I guess there's many aspects of security theater like it across like, you know, all different contexts. So, yeah, it uh, definitely would be uh, not something that's, you know, entirely mm-hmm. unique. The whole, and uh, and th- yeah, this is also this is also like bad news for the Soviets uh, uh, when they were developing uh, their next five year plan in 1985. And, you know, Gorbachev was, uh, I guess, uh, uh, somebody that I've put on my cabinet when I play Crisis of the Kremlin, um, the Minister <laughs> Besmertnik, um, uh-huh. who I think was uh, maybe the defense minister. Uh, he said, when we were talking about SDI, just the feeling that if we get involved in this SDI arms race, trying to do something like the U.S. was going to do, uh, to do space programs, space-based weapons, et cetera, looked like a horror to Gorbachev. And I guess, you know, Gorbachev wanted the centerpiece of, of like, I guess he, he had a special conference in June 1985 on scientific technical progress as its centerpiece uh, was a look at accelerating the development by updating the machine tools industry and modernizing computer technology, instrument making, and the electrotechnical and electronics industries. These were the catalysts of acceleration, uskorenie, uh, uskorenie, uh, uskorenie, uh, whatever, um, and the critical sectors in keeping the Soviet edifice in place, um, he you know, he declared there that scientific and technological progress was the most important mission. And he said, you know, this means above all the scientific technical renewal of production and the attainment of the highest world level of technology. And so at the time, they were also forming the 11th five-year plan. And it gave very high priority for overcoming the perceived lag with the West in electronics. But the problem with that was that the best Soviet research Sources in the field are being detected, directed towards military industrial work. And half of the machine tools were going to defense enterprises, which also employed the best scientists. At least half of all research and development expenditures were for the military. And the Reagan defense buildup, particularly its emphasis on emerging technologies, meant that more resources needed to be shifted to defense. Uh, and, you know, uh, General Yevseyev wrote in one military journal that the threat posed by emerging technologies would give the capitalists a surprise attack capability similar to the one posed by the Nazis when they invaded the Soviet Union in June 41. Uh, Deputy Defense Minister General Gareyev, in another article, held out Popkov, an old worker and hero in Simonov's The Living and the Dead, and as a model for the Soviet citizen. Facing a new capitalist threat, the public, it was hoped, would lament as Popkov did, quote, in the last resort, I would have even given up this flat and lived out my life in a single room on bread and water so that the Red Army could have everything it needed. The party had promised never to let the, the capitalists regain military superiority, but by keeping their word, they would pay dearly. And so, you know, Gorbachev, for his, like, he bought this notion that uh, we would never be, you know, militarily outdone. For him, I guess, falling behind the U.S. in the military technology sphere threatened the superpower status of the Soviet Union. Uh, there was no other way, Gorbachev told the party faithful. The competition that has grown more acute under the impact of scientific and technological progress is affecting those who have dropped behind ever more mercilessly. For Gorbachev, SDI was an American plan to further burden the Soviet economy. 
quote, the U.S. wants to exhaust the Soviet Union economically through a race in the most up-to-date and expensive space weapons, he told people on Moscow television. It wants to create various kinds of difficulties for the Soviet leadership to wreck its plans, including the social sphere, in the sphere of improving the standard of living of our people, thus arousing dissatisfaction among the people with their leaderships. So, yeah, and so therefore the new five-year plan called for more spending on advanced weapons and as Gorbachev would later admit the planned rate of growth for defense in 1986 through 1990 was almost 8% a year twice the rate of national income growth all told defense expenditures would rise an astonishing 45% in the next five years and you know uh, uh, and you know uh, Schweizer notes here uh, kind of Pathetically, like Gorbachev was looking to the West, in particular an anti-communist U.S. president, to ease up on the co- campaign against the Soviet Union. Well, Gorbachev, uh, yeah, like that's yeah. the thing. Like when you're yeah. dealing with Bill Casey, he's not going to let up. That's the point. Uh, right. So, uh, so yeah, and then you know, and that was right around the same time. Oh yeah, chapter 17. I saw here, August 1985. A stake was driven silently through the heart of the Soviet economy, and this, when the Saudis opened the spigot and flooded the world market with oil, and uh, yeah, bumping, jumping yeah. production well, from I'll less than two million barrels. Um, like, uh, yeah, well, interesting imagery uh, there. A stake. I guess that's a common uh, sort of right? trope, <laughs> but the the combination of yeah. like the gushing oil and the the stake to the heart. Yeah. All right. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the, so these things all uh, these things were all happening the same. And so he made this gamble on like high technology, like we have no choice but to match this and, you know, bumped up defense spending 45 percent over the last four years. Uh, but I guess, you know, you can't defend something if it dissolves and ceases to exist as a political uh, entity, can you? Yeah. <laughs> so no. you know i mean i i, I get i don't want to be too snarky uh on you know these late soviets but like uh, especially gorby i mean i think that i, <laughs> I think mean, that, you that have a soft he's spot for him because he's been in your cabinet so many times you know uh or or maybe you're referring <laughs> to the other guy no i've repressed uh, no no I, I put pressure on gorby like periodically to keep him from rising in too much popularity right. i've never mm-hmm. i've never yeah. let it him let him in my cabinet uh that's right uh, yeah dangerous yeah, that's, uh that's no double goes for yeltsin yeah mm-hmm. um right double Whoa. goes for yeltsin
Yeah. Um, uh, right. Well, you know, I I, I think um, also oh, yeah. The last thing uh, I do want to talk about Crisis in the Kremlin as it relates to this uh, briefly at the end, <laughs> but maybe um, we can also just um, talk about like Stinger missiles uh, being like uh, Schweizer. I think makes a pretty compelling case that it was only in, in I think 1985 going into 86 when the U.S. finally assented to giving Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen. Um, and I think mm-hmm. Schweizer makes a pretty big argument that, like, that really was the game changer for the war. Um, they also... Yeah. Re- Reagan also signed, uh, like, a national security directive. Um, there were a couple of them that were increasingly aggressive, um, like NS. NSDD-32 declared the United States would seek to neutralize Soviet control over Eastern Europe and authorize the use of covert action and other means to support anti-Soviet organizations. Uh, In uh, November, NSDD-66, Order 66, Mm -hmm. uh, declared it would be the U.S. policy to disrupt the Soviet economy by attacking a strategic triad of critical resources that were deemed essential and um, and then 1983, he did NSD DD75, which called for the United States not just to coexist with the Soviet system, but to change it fundamentally. And then he did another one in 1985 or uh, 1986 that basically, um, yeah, here it is, NSD166 in March 85, articulated for the first time specific objectives with regard to the Afghan war and put them in a strategic context, and the entire uh, government foreign affairs apparatus would be directed to support the effort. And uh, it basically, it had new elements. First, there is to be more effective supply and distribution of weapons to the Mujahideen. Special attention would be paid to supplying more advanced high-tech weapon system. At the same time, the U.S. intelligence community was directed to put more resources in collecting intelligence in the Soviet war, war effort. And uh, a third, um, yeah, and then it was like putting maximum political pressure on them internationally to like shame them into, uh, uh, you know, basically uh to pull out but uh but i guess nsdd 166 proved a major watershed in the effort to expel soviet forces from afghanistan quote you didn't have a major coordinated covert program until president reagan came to office this is vince canestraro who served in the cia in the 70s and 80s you didn't have a computer response until 1985 nsdd 166 was the turning point in the war it is hard to Uh, on that let's see if you look at the military situation on the ground prior to 1985 you had a stalemate but all they could do was wage a hit and run guerrilla war they didn't have the high-tech weapons to turn back the soviets that soon changed with nsdd 166 and that is mainly because they gave them hundreds of stinger missiles and then set up cia training camps to train hundreds of mujahideen uh basically to operate them and i guess you know they the stinger missile uh is incredibly easy to operate right um and they they actually in a very kind of a proto isis kind of way they had the mujahs they gave the mujahideen a video camera and had them like film the first stinger attack on some uh, on a column of hind helicopters that were uh, approaching an airport to land. And I guess the video wasn't very uh, good because the the cameraman was jumping up and down, uh, screaming Allahu Akbar uh, when they, they first hit. Uh, I believe they 
they took down like you know four out of eight helicopters like in a you know in a, uh, in a minute or two. Uh, but right. then they they chill they, out. They, we say Allahu Akbar. It's not a big deal. I'm just saying no, no. It's it's uh, mentioned. It's mentioned in the book that they they were all <laughs> screaming right. all. Over. This is the first video where you know you're you're gonna blow something up and you know it's it's kind of a meme. It's a it's an aesthetic uh, that mm-hmm. they're you know developing. And then yes. this video was yeah. whisked back to America and like personally delivered to the White House so Reagan could watch like the first stinger attack um Mm. on uh you know on these high helicopters so uh yeah so that you know uh thing that he mentioned was that like you know when the saudis were asking for these stingers because they were so afraid of like these air incursions and you know uh from various powers including from the soviets themselves uh Mm. you know they hadn't even given them to like you know, uh, our really firm allies, like, you know, in Western Europe and stuff, you know? And so like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they were giving them out as like an inducement as part of this operation, uh, you know, before, like, uh, it it was like a big ask, you know, they really had to Mm -hmm. lobby hard for it. And Bandar was a huge part of it. Um, yeah. Like the, the lobby for, for, to get the stinger missiles to the Saudis, uh, and, and the Pakistanis also got them. Uh, you know, so they could shoot down Soviet planes and such. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, they, I mean, like the Stinger missile, uh, if anybody's not aware, like it's basically like an automated heat seeking missile launcher. Uh, it's a it's a fire and forget weapon. So you basically can just sh- like once you aim at your target and shoot it, you can just run away. Like, you don't have to, you know, uh, remain exposed, so it's very good for, like, guerrilla warfare. It has an effective ceiling in excess of 15,000 feet, uh, carries a high-explosive warhead and races at 1,200 miles per hour, uh, uses a complex infrared heat-seeking detection system that, once it locks onto its target, is virtually impossible to distract with uh, countermeasures. And so that basically means, like, with very minimal training, you could send some guy out in a valley or just camp him outside of an airport... And you can start shooting down, you know, these hind helicopters, which have been like a central plank of the Soviet kind of war strategy there. Um, And uh, so I guess in that first video, in that first, you know, attack, yeah, they found, uh, you know, they found a a group of eight Soviet hind gunships uh, outside of Jalalabad. They fired three missiles, uh, like one malfunctioned, but then the other two hit. And uh, those helicopters, you know, fell out of the sky. They shot two more missiles, uh, knocked down two more helicopters. And uh, this is a kind of a staggering statistic. Uh, but he writes that the, uh, the potency of the wonder weapon was clear. Of the first 200 stingers fired, 75% hit aircraft. So that's like that's a pretty good success rate uh, for you know any kind of weapon. Um, you know, that's 150 uh, aircraft getting shot down for 200 you know out of 200 missiles that you give them and so that basically that that like totally changed the vibe of the afghan war from that point on like you know uh uh the air war uh became much harder to prosecute because uh uh you know both airplane pilots and helicopter pilots would like drop bombs from higher up which of course made them much less accurate they would get they would get in fights over like not wanting to go on certain bombing runs because they think they would get hit by stingers and it increased like the casualties uh you know a, a pretty great deal and so that kind of makes like yeah. a very yeah that that was kind of the real up to that point it was kind of a toss-up whether or not the soviets would kind of triumph in this like as, as late they were they were uh kind of having a surge i think in 1985 
they were bringing in like you know a new hotshot general and were uh, were using. I mean, they had their own kind of advanced technology like night vision and things like that, and could do these like strafing attacks with the uh, you know everyone can remember yeah. from Rambo three uh, that were pretty effective. And you know, uh, it, it's not to say that like you know the Afghan government like uh, was a complete you know Potemkin government. I mean like. I don't know. I, I think there are aspects of that government that like would have been uh, absent, you know, a civil war, like we're probably better in some ways. Maybe that's just my uh, my Western chauvinist perspective. But mm-hmm. it seemed like, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, compared like... to like the, the, the Mujahideen kind of uh, whole milieu. I mean, one thing that's funny here that gets uh, mentioned very casually when they were like training is that uh they would, let's see, oh, yeah, yeah, when uh, Brigadier General Mohammed Yusuf in the ISI was, like, mm-hmm. he would pick uh, the Mujahideen candidates, uh, and then they would go, yeah, this is weird, like, the Casey wanted the CIA to conduct the training, but the ISI refused. A simulator was brought in by the U.S. Army, and with the help of the local CIA, was set up at Ojiri Gamp, uh, Camp in Rawalpindi, and Mujahideen commanders were brought in. A three-week training course began immediately. 250 Stinger grip stocks were to be shipped per year with 1,200 missiles. And this, this is the interesting quote. Strike teams were organized to follow the new Stinger commanders. Once a plane was shot down, the strike team would finish off the pilot. It was a grisly task. After several months of training, the Stinger finally made its debut. So I don't know. So it's like they're just talking like the CIA trained them to go and like murder the pilots when they would like get, yeah. if they were alive, well, when they got the shot thing. down. Like with, as... Like, they make pretty clear that, like, these commanders, like, were carefully vetted to be, like, you know, like, they weren't, like, you know, it's not like everyone in Afghanistan who wasn't, like, you know, uh, associated with, like, you know, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan or whatever they, they it was called, you know, uh-huh. uh, was, like, this, you know, violent, rural, like, uh, you know, maniac who was, like, brutal, you know, what would cut, like, uh, would kill his own, you know, would kill pilots, like, out of the plane or whatever. It was, yeah, like, they were trained to do this, like, by the CIA. Uh, yeah, th- know, I mean, this was, is classic, like, like the, the this is School of the Americas. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. like... Uh, yeah, this is, sc- this is Contra reality. shit. This is Phoenix program yeah. shit. This is... And, you know, the psychological... Just to say real quick, like, the psychological efforts... Uh, they talked in the very beginning, like, all the way from... Da- I think that... I think that had a psychological impact of, like, this is what... The, do you really want to keep fighting? Because we're just going to, like, m- execute all your POWs and, like, cut their heads off. Mm-hmm. And like you know, videotape yeah. like, and that that's a very CIA way of thinking. I think uh, more than it is like an yeah. indigenous resistance movement way of thinking. And yeah. uh, but even on the biggest level, they talk in the beginning of this book. He talks about how the crazy cowboy image of Ronald Reagan was something that they decided to lean into. And he even uses right, the word yeah. that it, like it was a psyop. Like uh, they said early in eighty one thing with Nixon. Yeah, like you don't want to like you know play chicken with a madman or. Something. Something I think is what they say. Or like that, it you know? even makes like, you wonder yeah. about like Trump, like uh, about like what they, or maybe yeah. like people around Trump thought that like, hey, but, like you maybe. should act Although crazy. Although I do feel like in Trump's geopolitical dealings, like he always was being like outsmarted. I think that like may I don't know. Uh, uh, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm falling for like his idiot act or like you know his playing dumb. But I feel like. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, in his dealings with Erdogan, I always felt like he was getting, like, easily manipulated by him. Maybe, like, it worked mm-hmm. on Iran somewhat, like, 
I guess maybe it did work on Iran somewhat, where, like, they didn't retaliate as heavily as perhaps they could have because they were afraid that he actually would, like, you know, uh, yeah. inflict devastating losses on them. Maybe. I don't know. Possible. Uh, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. But they, they, they said at one of their first National Security Planning Group meetings in 81, it was decided the administration needed to begin a concerted covert effort to play on Soviet psychological vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So, like, mind war, basically. Uh, the Soviets were concerned about Ronald Reagan, whom they characterized as an unpredictable cowboy. And um, uh, Richard Allen had met with Soviet ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin during the transition. Quote, they thought they had some first-class nutball on their hands, recalls Allen. They were frightened to death. Uh, the new administration saw value in cultivating that image. It was part of Reagan's strategy to get the Soviets to think he was a little crazy, says Allen. This is a concept proposed by the late strategist Herman Kahn, who had compared the superpower competition to the game of chicken. Neither side wanted to crash, went the theory, but neither wanted to back down when a confrontation arose. Yet some ultimately someone would back down to prevent all-out war. As Kahn so succinctly put it, no one wants to play chicken with a madman. So the cowboy image had its strategic advantages. Born from this meeting was an formal but very intense psychological operation parentheses psyop in all caps uh <laughs> the goal the goal was to shape the kremlin's thinking by putting it on the psychological defensive and thereby making it less prone to taking risks this involved a series of military probes in the soviet periphery it was very sensitive fred eichel recalls nothing was written down about it so there'd be no paper trail sometimes we would send bombers over the north pole and their radars would click on recalls general jack chain the former strategic air command uh uh, commander other times fighter bombers would probe their asian or european periphery during peak times the operation would include several maneuvers in a week they would come at irregular intervals to make the effect all the more unsettling then as quickly as the unannounced flights began they would stop only to begin a few weeks later it really got to them recalls dr william schneider undersecretary of state for military assistance and technology who saw classified after action reports that indicated u.s flight activity they didn't know what it all meant a squadron would fly straight at Soviet airspace, and their radars would light up and units would go on alert. Then, at the last minute, the squadron would peel off and return home. The first PSYOP probes began in mid-February and were designed primarily to sow uncertainty and therefore deter a Soviet move into Poland. But the operations would be used throughout the administration as seen fit to send a psychological message to the Kremlin. And I guess uh, later in the book, he says after like having the maybe the first summit with Gorbachev, uh, Reagan sort of like, I guess, appreciated for the first time that like the Soviets really were paranoid that America was going to like attack them with nuclear weapons at any moment. And he like quietly told them to like stop flying bombers over the North pole all the time. Uh, because he realized it was like, Oh, I guess that, that does seem kind of dangerous, I guess. But yeah, you can see the kind of like the, this really is kind of like a, I don't know. It's, it isn't interesting. Like mind war gets written. And then the year later, like this, this entire decade, like everything this administration is doing is like a big laboratory for mind war and just like yeah. total, total war like on every single level like economic psychological culture political military mm -hmm. just everything yeah. you know mm -hmm. they were up against yeah. real shit um and, and you know i think spirituality yeah uh, and, and yeah weaponizing like spirituality yes yeah uh, yeah really and uh in the aquino's uh, domain for sure yeah mm-hmm yeah yeah um so we start to wrap up. I mean, I just want to say, like, in preparation uh, for this episode, I, I stayed up pretty late last night uh, playing through <laughs> a Crisis in the Kremlin, which I've brought up before, cause, and tried to apply the lessons of this book to my strategy to basically defeat Bill Casey. 
because uh, that when I play that game now, that's what I think. I I I, I can like mm-hmm. feel the presence of the Reagan National Security Council like breathing down my neck, and uh, and it's interesting how like this book syncs up so. Like it's it maybe a testament to the game more to the than the, to the book that like the major events that happen that fuck you over in the game are the ones that are highlighted in this book. Like uh, basically, you know, you have a decent amount of money and revenue coming in, but then at the end of 1985, you know, the the, the on the next turn, basically uh, the Saudis like take the price of oil and like a huge chunk of your treasury just goes away. So suddenly you have to like spread your resources way more thin. And uh, and then at the same time, like there's there's trouble in Poland, like you have to keep arming uh, the military in Afghanistan. Uh, You have to uh, you know, you almost don't even have time to support third world revolutions, though. You can go that route if you want to. But uh, I you know, I I played through it last night and, you know, I I at least got through the end of this book. I think I, I got to the beginning of 1988. I was playing with a kind of a custom general secretary character that I created that um, is kind of like a, um, a Stalinist Trotskyist hybrid is the best way to describe it. Um, okay. So, it, so for the Can first time more, I, I uh, what sure. Uh, well, so right now, like the, the Stalinist and the, the Trotsky is kind of formed. hybrid seems, Oh, okay. They formed, uh, well, you know, they're, they're kind of, in, they have like a majority coalition. I banned the moderates. So like the minority party is the conservatives, um, Maoists and technocrats are being pressured. So they're, they're out of the picture. And, um, you know, I guess, uh, it, it opens the door for you to do certain things. Like, uh, I, I've, you know, appointed myself generalissimo, uh, of the armed forces. So I have, you know, stronger loyalty with the army, but because I have a Trotskyist background, the intellectuals like me more. Uh, it's funny I how see. that always goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, yeah, and then, sense. so, you know, there's certain things like I've tried to invest. I want to, I want to develop OGAS, you know, the cybernetic central planning kind of technology, but it, it's quite expensive. And, uh, and you know, I, I, for the first time, because I'm, I'm sort of a quasi trot, um, I'm able to support left terrorism in the U S uh, which mm-hmm. hasn't really yeah. seemed to have any effect yet. Like I, I, I haven't gotten much pushback, but, uh, still the thing the same problems apply if you start to foment too much rev- uh, revolution in like third world countries. Um, you'll, you'll get backed into a, you know, situation where, you either have to, you know, risk war with the U.S. or call a detente, which uh, lowers your political power points, makes you look like a punk. The KGB loses mm-hmm. respect for you. It's really bad. Um, but I've right. been able to, like, make it. And I, I was able to blunt by uh, inviting Libya into Comic-Con. Uh, I've basically been able to mitigate the... Uh, the oil drop. Um, but now, but I keep getting, you know, it keeps prompting you with all this SDI stuff. So I've assiduously avoided falling for the Russian psyop that, you know, right. Uh, SRI, I should pay any attention to it whatsoever. So I'm investing in new domestic, like industrial technologies and science and things like that. But I'm not, I'm completely ignoring the SDI. I'm just acting like it's fake, fake news it's not real. And so far, I'm making it, you know? I mean, it's a very hard game to, like, survive uh, into the 90s, like, intact. I have some loyalty issues um, uh, with some of the republics, but since I'm generalissimo, I can send in the military to eliminate uh, disloyal people and uh, 
you know, prop them up with finance and things like that. But uh, it is challenging, you know, like, I mean, uh, the Afghan war, I kind of like backed off and did like a negotiate. I think I put Najibullah in charge of Afghanistan. So then, Mm -hmm. you know, they, uh, they, they, he formed some kind of coalition government with like moderates. So uh, it's not full communism in Afghanistan, but also like, you know, it's not, uh, you know, uh, fully Operation Cyclone yeah. owned either. I mean, either. they definitely, uh, they're definitely, it was definitely like a, a, a mistake uh, what they did in, in Afghanistan. I mean, a lot of their Central Asian policy was, you know, uh, left a lot to uh, be desired, uh, to say the least. Uh, sure, I think that, sure. You know, I mean, well, like, uh, they, like uh, their vulnerability, uh, the vulnerability that uh, William Casey perceived in, in Central Asia probably would not have been as easily exploited if not for their own missteps in terms of the, the war. Would you say? I don't know. Let's, uh, uh, I, I, let's, I would, let's you know, I, I would say, yeah. I would, I would say to a point that is definitely true. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the thing that like Brzezinski and everybody was salivating about from the very beginning when the Soviets moved into Afghanistan was like, now we can give them their own Vietnam. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so to that extent that it opened up the opportunity for, you know, both in a messaging level and just like a, you know, you're naturally going to piss some people, you're going to piss some, some groups of people off, you know, like by mm-hmm. intervening in this country, even though I, I mean, not, not to say, oh, like, you know, the, the people's, uh, you know, people's Afghanistan government or democratic Afghanistan, whatever that was supported by the Soviets, uh, was like, uh, all good or all bad. I think it was like it, I can understand. I don't think it was like evil for them to like, want to support this government, which was being like attacked by various, like, uh, kind of like reactionary factions, like trying to overthrow it and Mm -hmm. stuff. Like I understand why they didn't want, why they wanted to stand up and like help, you know, this, uh, uh, this like struggling nascent like socialist government and everything. But I do think when they got like sucked deeper into it, it, it ended up being, uh, I think as one Soviet official, uh, said around 86 or 87, that it was like a bleeding wound that, you know, uh, just, I think, you know, I think when they got into it, they didn't anticipate they'd be dealing with like four or five other existential crises during this decade. And I think as it went on and also, you know, that they, they didn't know that Ronald Reagan and uh, crazy Bill Casey were wild Bill Casey. were going to be running the show and we're going to give stinger missiles to these guys and all that stuff. I think they thought that, you know, surely like these bandits, that that, that was a language they would often use, like these terrorists and bandits um, that, you know, harass our forces. Like, obviously, they couldn't win against us. So in a way, I don't know. They thought that, you know, a kind of low great uh pacification campaign would sort of do the trick and they got sucked into this like bigger and bigger thing which then yeah kind of exposed the soft underbelly and um Mm -hmm. and it and it did give the arab world like which i think that that almost in a way is like equally important aside from the 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 context of like muslims in central asia but like the way that the arab and muslim world looked at the soviets after 1980 yeah because uh you know there i mean there's certain things like like for example like in this uh in crisis in the kremlin there are uh, several opportunities where you can kind of break with like certain segments of the muslim world and support them against other like you could kind of pick if you want to back iran or iraq in the war and then that kind of 
has a determination on how other countries in like the Muslim world kind of react to you. And, uh, and I think they kind of did themselves. It it was an unfortunate timing when they probably could have used more support from like in Iran or, I mean, they had Syria, but that was kind of about it or Egypt or, you know, other countries like this and, um, and continue to make more like inroads in, uh, in, you know, uh, like South Yemen, yeah. another example, but uh, like it just mm-hmm. was not uh, not great timing. Yeah. I think we'll we'll probably do another episode, like fo- uh, even deeper dives into like Afghanistan because there's like a lot of moving parts. Um, and yeah. Uh, um, no, yeah, I mean, like uh, I'll give them a little bit that, like uh, you know, there was like uh, some real politic like concerns in terms of like you know, uh, the, like, pressure from Pakistan and, and things like that, I, I suppose. But, you know, yeah, that government was uh, really bad, yeah. And it was, uh, there, like, uh, you know, were lots of uh, is- issues there. But, uh, you know, that's my uh, take on, on the matter. Um, the, what, the, demo- know, the, yeah. Afghan, the, the Afghan yeah, government yeah. of the late 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they did and, come to power, like, by assassinating, I think, uh was it the king? They did or assassinate the him. Uh, no, he was like well, kind of uh, like a pro-Soviet, like relative. Yeah, he was a king. He was it was the king, but he uh, and I guess he, like uh, or was was it the like uh, yeah, I guess so. Like he was uh, like um, yeah, he was he was the king, Muhammad uh, Zahir Shah, the last king of of Afghanistan, uh, mm-hmm. was killed. Um, yeah. Um, what, but, what was the, yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. what was the, uh, the, of the democratic Republic of Afghanistan, I guess, um, that was the, uh, the, the official name of it from 1978. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. what was, uh, so I mean, cause, cause you know, uh, the, there's some nice things and I, I don't want to get into that game of like, they let women go to school. So like they were better, uh-huh. but like, you know, yeah. uh, they did, they did offer a lot more in terms of equal rights to women, universal education, land reform, things like that. Um, I think that, I think that's what it was. I'm looking at it right now. There was a power struggle between two factions in this, uh, this, this original revolution, which I, I think was kind of, uh, yeah, the SAR revolution, which uh, ousted right. uh, mm-hmm. Muhammad Dawood Khan. And I guess there was, yeah, the Kalk faction and the Parkham or Parcham faction. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, Amin and Taraki. Uh, and Amin had Taraki killed. I mean, I hate to read uh, fully from Wikipedia. Uh, but then Amin was assassinated by Soviet military forces. Um, I'm not seeing any footnote for that, but I don't know. Um, there's a <laughs> yeah, lot I mean, of, they um, were like in the, like, you know, in the sort of build up to like the war, uh, there were a lot of like, uh, brutal incidents. Like, uh, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, my like academic work is kind of on, on early modern Herat. So I've heard about like the, uh, Herat uprising, I believe is, uh, Oh yeah. 1979 Herat uprising. Um, uh, was that it? Yeah. Like, um, it, yeah, it was, uh, like a very brutal, uh, event. Um, and, uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, many, uh, died. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, uh, similar situations, uh, to that, that occurred like kind of in the, uh, the lead up, um, like, uh, uh, to the, to, to the war, uh, or to the Soviet, uh, invasion. 
um, and mm-hmm. like you know around the Soviet sort of support for the government. Um, there were a lot of uh, sort of uh, brutal suppression uh, of, uh, you know, in a way that was, uh, you know, not uh, not chill, uh, I would say. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, again, like, I'm not a super big uh, expert on, uh, you know, this by, by any means. So, you know, I'm sure that there's, like, ideologues on, like, either side who could, like, uh, you know, uh, make uh, the, the argument uh, either way. But, you know... Uh, yeah, I feel like uh, there's there's definitely some fault there. I would say, um, yeah. It was. Um, I I think it was. Yeah, it was imperfect. Uh, uh, not the. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, messiness uh, going on, and I think even for Afghanistan, which uh, had a very like decentralized and still kind of to this day, has like in terms of like a national culture, it's like mm-hmm. it, it's quite decentralized, right? Um, like, uh, I mean, it's almost, like, hyper-centralized, I guess, in terms of, like, you know, uh, like, what, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, I don't know, what, 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 like, uh, explain. Well, I don't know if it's hyper, I mean, well, I mean, like, there's, there's, like, obviously, like, a citadel of, like, power in Kabul, but I, I know I've read mm-hmm. this over, over the years oh, that, like, like, you know, uh, almost like, like, the power doesn't extend past the capital. It's like there's still a lot of, like, you know, there's uh, warlords and kind of, like, uh, tribal sort of right. chieftains and, like, yeah, that's things what, like that. Uh, like there's and, still, like, a little bit of, like, uh, yeah, tribal uh, sort of, yeah, uh, in terms of, like, in rural areas and, and things like that. Uh, there mm-hmm. definitely is. That's kind of what I mean in terms of, like, there's, like, a you know, local, uh, locuses of power in that way. I guess that's a form of, of decentralization, but that's, you know, uh, in like rural places, uh, that's still like, uh, the case, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, again, like I, like not a huge expert on the landscape of modern Afghanistan, but like in urban places, like, you know, it's not, uh, you know, something that's like, uh, like a, is totally like a rule by warlords or whatever uh, oh no for sure for that's sure not yeah really been the case uh in the, in the past um but yeah um mm-hmm. and yeah so uh, we'll we'll come back to uh afghanistan uh in the 80s uh one of these days and i i think actually like like examining kind of the uh, the challenges like leading up to the soviet intervention uh would be really uh fascinating because uh yeah mm-hmm I think yeah, because it, again, yeah. it's kind of like the Sino-Soviet split. It's like they, these guys ended up, a lot of these guys ended up like killing each other and kind of like taking over, you know, like Carmel and Amin. And it's so like, so, I don't know, like somebody had to be right and somebody had to be wrong, right? I mean, mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, I guess that's or it, true. it's yeah. too... Or- or it's too simple yeah. to say that they're all like evil commie like sickos who just like whatever blah 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 i mean uh i guess we'll we'll have to well, see yeah i guess um, especially on both sides in terms of uh, sino-soviet split i guess both sides were like commie sick well, you know you couldn't really brand one side one way or the other i guess although maybe the argument would be they're just both such sickos that they couldn't get along because like they were too like sick i don't know uh, uh i i don't know so, well yeah. apparently I mean, uh, you know china wasn't so sick that they couldn't help us build listening stations and uh yeah they were <laughs> you know no, all over uh, the place I mean, I mean, my friend yeah but no that, i mean that's like yeah. a big sticking point from where the soviet union is like the central asian and i like you know uh, uh there's there's like there's definitely nuances there like you know i think as i mentioned like 
your sort of standard, like, uh, Muslim view of the Soviet Union, like, in retrospect, is, like, generally negative, but, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, there's definitely room for a lot of nuance in, in there, like, uh, I think that we pointed out some of sure. those. Uh, yeah, but definitely, like, uh, there are some serious, uh, missteps like in terms of that government and the soviet support for it uh and i think uh, mm -hmm. and i think that that's, yeah that's yeah that was it worth it <sighs> yeah was uh, it but, worth it the yeah. nine years of uh bleeding out um in you know the graveyard of empires etc uh uh perhaps not but of course it maybe it would have worked out if it wasn't for uh, Bill Clay, Bill Casey and his Operation Cyclone and uh, the several billion dollars and hundreds of Stinger missiles uh, and uh, you know uh, Chinese like Soviet weapons and uh, Egyptian bolt action rifles and Saudi yeah the bolt that definitely was what uh, turned the tide was the bolt action rifles that uh, yeah said. yeah uh, well yeah. you know. Um, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. So I guess, you know, uh, mission accomplished, uh, Reagan administration, they got their victory after all. Yeah. I they, guess they did uh, get victory too bad. They couldn't apply that to the, uh, you know, the Democrat, the demon Karats, um, today, uh, and they failed to get victory. No, uh, and they did. Yeah. They with. did not. They didn't conduct the now we have to have maximum our own, pressure campaign. Yeah, now we're living under communist rule um, ourselves. So, you know, uh, the Soviets did win in the end because now we have uh, Commandante Biden in the White House here with, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, his, his uh, you know, first party secretary, uh, Kamala, mm -hmm. you know, who we yep. all know is a very staunch Maoist. Um, really staunch you know. Maoist. Um, yeah, like all Freemasons, um, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, you have you have you have Biden the Stalinist, uh, Kamala the Maoist, and Bernie the Trotskyist, and they're all perfectly in cahoots together with zero friction. Like when I play my game. Yeah. Because that's how communism works: the ideology of sickos and domination and evil. Yes. Mm -hmm. And apparently Pretty denying uh, denying all the loci of power of the great Abrahamic religions, which uh, need to crush it, yeah. I guess, to take the world mm -hmm. over. Um, yes. Which is um, <laughs> yes. the real Abraham uh, Accords. So, yeah, the real Abraham Accords. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, that's a whole uh, other interesting thing to consider is like these. Ab I want. I hope that like something. Uh, we'll see what happens in terms of Israel. Like it's really just like a like you know. Uh, they need to stop. Uh, they need to be stopped. Uh, but you know <laughs> these same ghouls in the GCC are uh, you know uh, rolling over. It seems like. Well, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, we could go yeah. on about that, but I just feel like, yeah, what well, uh, people are going to have to, people are giving up. Um, yeah. You know, maybe that's what has to happen. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's people a weird, it's a weird, uh, yeah. It's a weird world we're living in and this, uh, all this shit helped create it. And, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, now with our new yeah. president i don't even think he's like a really uh, cognizant anymore of uh of like how we got to where we are yeah mm. well yeah i will we'll see we'll see how this we'll uh, new see. administration shakes out uh certainly 
I mean, like, uh, yeah, I feel like uh, it's going to be run by people who are, like, ideological students of Bill Casey, uh, more or less. Yes. Like, that's who really will be making decisions uh, in terms yeah, of the, the, uh, where we go from here. The tone, Probably. like, the, the tones yeah. and the virtues that are being signaled will be somewhat different, but, like, the underlying mentality and strategy is going to be very Bill Casey, I suspect. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, total, you know, like, you know, Maduro is like fat shaming, you know, Guido's wife or something. <laughs> yeah. You <just> bomb <laughs> <Right>. him, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. maximum pressure. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, it seems like it's going to be like with an eye towards China. Um, we'll we'll see mm-hmm. what happens. I mean, it might like by contrast like seem somewhat conciliatory but i don't know like uh he definitely has appointed some people who are kind of like uh obama reformist china hawks so we'll see what Mm -hmm. kind of uh you know um goes down um and thankfully if there were i mean most of the people that were actually actors like in this book are uh probably dead now but uh, yeah. probably some of their protégés are kicking around. And judging by the, you know, the absolute purge we've had uh, in this last month where, you know, Republicans, like, finally came to their senses and got rid of this orange, sick, this orange sicko fuck uh, bad mm, man, yeah. you know, and got him right. out. The now, ultimate, like, yeah. every... Who's a communist like, probably, himself, you know, malice. Yeah, uh, basically. Because, yeah, you know, if, if hammer Putin's sickle, bitch, Putin's then, poodle. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, right. if Putin's your daddy, you're a Marxist. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. But I think that it's, like, every ghoul uh, or, like, weird, like, young Republican neocon who, like, sat at the feet of, like, Bill Casey and, like, robert mcfarlane in the 80s uh it and you know it was coming from like the foundation for the defense of democracies is now like liberal approved for a job in like the new administration so yeah uh, we might you know what i mean like they've got all got lincoln projected so even though that guy got canceled last week for like i don't know uh propositioning men or or something like that um which is uh, actually very bill casey of him uh if you want to get real (laughs) about it uh you know i mean uh we'll we'll get when we go back to confessions of a dc madam one day that has a few great bill casey cameos um uh involving like you know the escort blackmail rings and stuff right um yes yeah Um, yeah so uh i don't know you know maybe we'll see we'll see who mm -hmm. turns up in this new uh paradigm yes we we certainly will um yeah and uh i mean we'll be once again talk like uh once again the u.s is under catholic control uh you know it was all <laughs> like coordinated between you know trump appointed them all to the supreme court uh trump and obama worked together to cement the papist control over the supreme court and now we have the shit you're you right know, and now yeah, we have the, the Jesuit trained president. Oh my yep. god! Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, the do. Jesuit pope, and they're converging together. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, we're we're gonna have to. Okay, I think we're we're hitting that time now, where I think like there's gonna be a Jesuit ep uh, coming up in the next maybe the next month or two. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Some Catholic deep dives. I think it's time. Um, yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. time. You know, like, there's a lot Busta of, tried to uh, warn us. 
Yes, the, yeah, he, did, he did try to warn us. Yeah, well, you know, this is all, as we've seen in this book, you know, it's all part of this massive subliminal uh, slash ecumenical crusade unfolding. And uh, we got to stop the, you know, the cats from uh, from coming out on top, you know. Uh, <laughs> we, like, um, I'm very yeah. as, no as somebody who is our, uh, programmed. Uh, you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, know. I I'm a You're I'm baptized in the yeah I know I was baptized in the Romanist uh, you know faith. Uh, yeah, uh, I actually was also as a, baptized. As a fun fact about me is that like I'm claimed by like all three Abrahamic religions. Wow, um, really? You're you baptized know. as a Catholic? Yeah, because my grandfather's uh, Irish Catholic, so he insisted that Oof. I be baptized. Yeah. Wow. So I'm on the Okay. Well, Christian. now, okay. So uh, you you feel yeah. seen in the White House right now? Um, uh, I well, also yeah, have because a little... Joe Biden is maybe, maybe yeah. he's also an apostate Muslim, you know, and prays with John Brennan. Uh, you know, maybe he was oh, his yep. with Obama. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. No, we're we're it all converges at some point. Um, yeah. But uh, well. We'll we'll figure it out once we have a little more to go off of with these uh these Catholics in action, we'll let you all know. But uh, but few were as impactful <laughs> as William J. Casey. Yes, few were. Few had the honor of getting like a secret mass in a country where like Bibles weren't <laughs> even allowed. Like uh, you know, that is um, uh mass off mass off. Uh, you know, well, yeah, right yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah word um, okay um yeah all right i guess we'll we'll get out of here now um yeah. but uh yeah just uh every, everybody start playing crisis of the kremlin and start training uh because one day you might be in charge of a workers republic that is uh being attacked by a psychotic uh, knight of malta who wants to uh starve you or make you scream uncle so beware and uh until next time, stay vigilant. Peace. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor and the Rich get rich, that's how it goes. And everybody knows. Everybody knows the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling. Like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem.